0: How are we? Good. Man, I'm so glad that you are here. Welcome to this Saturday seminar at Desert Springs Church on Christology. I learned so much about Jesus Christ this morning. That's right. We should woo about, about Christ. Um, if I haven't met you, if you're watching online, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the minister of theological training here at Desert Springs. And people, when I tell them what my title is, a lot of times they ask, what does that actually mean, theological training? This, this is theological training. This is one of the areas uh, that it's my privilege to oversee, trying to coordinate and provide uh, venues like this, teaching venues that we consider to be supplemental and complementary to what you hear on a Sunday morning. Um, So this is a, a time for us, along with other classes, conferences, different teaching studies and things that we have where you can just Keep on learning and plumbing the depths of uh, of our God and Savior of the doctrines that influence our lives, and then what it means to live out that doctrine um, as disciples of jesus so uh, we're going to keep on trying to provide offerings like this. COVID has definitely put a hamper on some of those things. But as uh, COVID restrictions keep on lifting, Lord willing, we just pray. We pray that things keep on improving. And um, as we make some changes with the construction projects that we have going on, that's our, that's our goal. That's my vision is to provide more and more uh, theological training venues for you all. So more classes, more conferences, more seminars. So keep praying about that. Pray for me and get excited. So, the, uh, the seminar this morning, this idea for a seminar on Christology actually came after a group of men from our church, members in our church, and, and some folks on staff. We all did a study together in the doctrine of Christ. So, we were doing some reading, we were listening to some lectures, and a lot of that material was uh, focused on the, uh, the teaching of Dr. Steve Wellam. So some of you guys would remember Dr. Wellum. He's been here for conferences in the past. He's a systematic theology professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And as we were kind of going into this, this teaching and the study and this st- topic of the doctrine of Christ and we were all kind of having our minds blown in various ways and we were so encouraged and we thought it was so good that we thought you know what we want to condense what was about five months worth of reading and material down to a weekend format so that we can try and share more of this with our church. So that's what this time is this morning. So we will be relying very heavily on material from Dr. Wellham so I thought uh, I would point out to you some of these resources if you're interested in Further study. So as a group, uh, we read Dr. Wellam's textbook, which is called God the Son Incarnate, okay? The Doctrine of Christ. So this is great, really, really thick, um, really hard to read at times. There's a lot of Latin and Greek in it. But if that's your thing, go for it. Okay, this is, this is a very, very helpful resource. Um, then Dr. Wellam has actually written this, which maybe some of y'all speed a little bit more. I know it is mine, The Person of Christ and Introduction. And we actually talked to Dr. Wellam. Uh, he was kind enough to share some of his time with us as we were uh, going through this study together. And Dr. Wellam even kind of recommended this one over the textbook. So this is from uh, Crossway. This is a new series that they're doing, short studies in systematic theology. Um, So again, it's called The Person of Christ, an introduction that's still by Dr. Steve Wellam. And then one other book uh, that I would recommend to you is this book called Knowing Christ. So this is by Mark Jones Um, It's kind of modeled after J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, if you're familiar with that. This would be another one. If you just want to learn more about Christ, uh, about the doctrine of Christ, and then why that uh, matters so much for us and and that should should lead us to worship, I would recommend this book to you. Now, two other books that I want to recommend that I actually want to give away this morning. So, blessed are you for coming in person to the Saturday seminar. You get to, you know, potentially go home with one of these books. Um, This is another book by Dr. Wellam, called Christ Alone. So this is in a series in the Solas of the Reformation, which Pastor Ryan talked about on Sunday. So this is, again, just going through the uh, Reformation teaching of Christ alone, that salvation is by Christ alone. So it's an introduction into Christology, but then why uh, our Christology matters to our salvation. So this is another pretty thick one, but a good one. First person to raise their hand can have this. Okay, who's that back there? It's so bright. I can't, I still can't see. But it's yours. Is that Derek? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay. Good to see you, brother. This is yours. Okay. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, this book, The New City Catechism by Tim and Kathy Keller. This is uh, a catechism for children, but not just for children. I think we could all use a little bit more catechesis. Okay. But um, I wanted to offer this today because thinking about these things, thinking about theology, getting our doctrine right, understanding what we mean when we're talking about the Trinity, this, you don't need to wait until you're 40 to start figuring this stuff out, you can actually start teaching this to children. And this is a wonderful tool for that. We use this with our kids. What I love about this book is it has an app that you can download on your phone that has songs that goes along with all of the questions and answers for this. And so my little girl can tell you who the three persons of the Trinity are because of a song in this little book. So anybody, a parent or, or just a curious, would you like this? Here you go. Okay, I'll get that to you afterwards. So you guys can come grab those from me. Now, we have uh, three speakers this morning um, that I want to introduce to you and introduce the topics that they're talking about. So, our first speaker is going to be our own Caleb Bachelor. Many of you guys know Caleb. Caleb is uh, our minister for youth and families at our church. Um, Caleb is, if you haven't met him, um, one of my Best friends here at the church. I'm so glad that he's here. He moved to, he and his wife Leah, they've been married for five years, and they've got Jane, who's coming up on two, right? Close, close to two. Sweet little girl, and then a baby boy on the way. Uh, congratulations, Leah. They've been here since February of 2020, so their timing was impeccable as far as when they, uh, they got here. But Caleb grew up in rural Florida, and then in eastern Tennessee, he studied nursing. Is that right? At the University of Tennessee, um, and then went to Louisville, Kentucky, to work on his MDiv at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and Caleb finished his MDiv in December. So Caleb's going to be our first speaker this morning, and he's going to be talking about uh, the biblical data that informs our Christology, and especially the biblical theology that that we have to have right to understand. What we believe about Christ. So, what is everything that the Bible says, especially in the Old Testament, what does that teach us about who Christ is? Our second speaker is Marshall Bawamini. Uh Marshall is a member in our church. He's been married to Melissa for 13 years, and they have two kids, two boys Hudson, who's seven, Cade, who is three. Marshall grew up in Central California, and he came to Albuquerque through the Air Force. And after Marshall finished serving in the Air Force, he started a landscape business that he said was a side job while he was working part-time at another church here in the area. And then that landscape company just took off and now has become his full-time career. So uh, Marshall has helped me in my yard. If you need uh, help with that, you can certainly ask him. Marshall's a graduate of Grand Canyon University, and he's dabbled in some master's level work at Southern Seminary. Uh, Marshall and Melissa have been at DSC for 10 years, and as he said it, they have held a lot of babies in the nursery. So this was all pre-COVID, and they uh, also now have started serving in the youth group together. So Marshall's talk, he's going to move from uh, the biblical data to the historical development of our Christology. So that's looking at church history, what has the church said about Jesus, and then what has the church said uh, that are errors about Jesus. So Marshall is especially going to be looking at the wrong thoughts about Jesus that have arisen throughout church history and how we can be on guard against certain heresies. And then our last speaker is going to be Brett Landis. Brett was born here in Albuquerque. He attended UNM, where he came to faith in Christ, and he met his wife, Casey. After they, married, they, uh, after they married and graduated, they moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and Brett completed his MDiv at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there. They returned to Albuquerque, and Brett interned at a church for a few years before he also uh, went into the landscaping business. And then uh, Brett became licensed as a CPA, and now he's working as an accountant. Brett and Casey have been at DSC since the end of 2014. Brett leads our Book Nook ministry, so he's the one that makes sure all those books are out there. And he's uh, helping us curate the best books and um, trying to provide that as a resource for you. And he's also been a community group leader for several years. So uh, Brett's really got the hardest task of all for this morning is he's going to take that biblical data and the historical development and finally give us some theological definitions so that we can have uh, the right answers to this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? So he's going to kind of help us put everything together positively so that we know and we can clearly talk about what we believe about Jesus and why that matters so much for us. So um, as these uh, brothers go through this talk this morning, we'll be kind of walking through that progression. And let me just tell you that after each each talk there's going to be a little break okay so we'll have a little five minute break after each talk and then after the third talk after Brett's talk we're going to hopefully have a little bit of time left over at the end where we can do a Q&A okay so we're going to bring everybody back up here and then you guys can have some questions so I'm sure you're going to have questions this is a massive topic just write those down okay and maybe the next guy will answer the question that the first guy raised for you but if not we'll have some time at the end to engage with that or you can come up and talk to these brothers afterwards they've been thinking about this quite a bit. So, that's what this morning is going to look like. I'm very excited. You all ready to strap in, do this? Okay, great. Praise God. Well, let me do this. Let's pray for our time together, and then we'll invite Caleb up to start our first talk. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God, we have come to consider this Jesus in whom the fullness of deity dwelt in a human body. And in that body offered on the cross made peace. For us, this God who is before all things and through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, this Lord, this Savior that we have. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about, about these things this morning, that you would expand our knowledge, that you would expand our understanding, that you would expand our hearts so that we would be even more uh, awed by who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus' I pray for my brothers, especially this morning, as they teach that the things that they say would be clear and right. And for all of us gathered together, that we would think right thoughts after you. That we would think about you the way that you think about you. And in that, you would be glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? What do you think? I can't think of a more important question to get right. We need to know the answer to this question. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples a series of questions. And he starts off by asking them, who do other people say that I am? That's an interesting question. It's an important question. Who do people in Albuquerque say that Jesus is? Who do your coworkers say that Jesus is? Who do your neighbors say that Jesus is? These are important, interesting questions. But they are not the most important question. No, Jesus saves that question for last. He's heard from his disciples what other people think about him, and now he wants to know what his disciples think about him. And so he asks them, and by extension, he asks us this morning, who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. Peter doesn't always nail it, but this time he nails it. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God, the Son incarnate. You, singular, one person. Christ, the Messiah, the human Redeemer who is going to come and set God's people free. The Son of the living God, fully divine. One person, two natures, Peter nails it. And this has to be true. If his answer is not true, I don't know what we're doing here this morning. We might as well just pack up and leave if this is not true. If this is not true, this whole Saturday seminar is just a stupid idea and you don't have to come to church tomorrow morning. But if it is true, if this answer from Peter is true, then it has eternal implications for us. And we need to know how Peter got his answer. So that's going to be the center of the talk this morning, is how did Peter get his answer? If you're thinking, is God's grace? It was God's grace that Peter answered correctly. Well, you'd be right if that's what you're thinking. If you're thinking, Peter watched Jesus' ministry. He saw him do amazing things, and he saw that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think you would also be right. But I think there's more. I think there's more to Peter's answer because of the title that he gives him. The title that Peter gives Jesus just has too many layers. Too many layers that are found in too many pages of Scripture for those other answers to be just it. The reason why Peter got the answer right is because he knew the pages of his Old Testament. Peter got his answer from his Bible. Before he could answer, who do you say that I am? He had to answer, who does the Old Testament say that I am? Peter got his answer from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got his answer the same way the disciples on the road to Emmaus got it. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples on the way to Emmaus. And as usual, the disciples are clueless. They have no clue who Jesus is. They think he's just a normal dude. What does Jesus do? He could have opened their eyes right then, and bam, they would have... perfect Christology. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. What did he do? He went to the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scriptures. All the scriptures are about Jesus. The Old Testament says That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got his answer right because he knew what my one-year-old daughter knows. What is the Bible about? Jesus. Don't miss that. If you miss everything else in this talk, don't miss that. The Bible is about Jesus. It is not fundamentally a manual of right things you should do and wrong things you shouldn't do. It's fundamentally about a God who's willing to come and die for your sins because he loves you. The Bible is about Jesus. And every text has a path that leads to him. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon tells a story about an older minister that gives a younger minister some sermon feedback. Listen to this story. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London. Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, But suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get at him. So must we do, brethren. We must have Christ in all our discourses, whatever else is in or not in them. Wherever you are in England, whether you're in Manchester or Brighton, there's a road to get to London. And wherever you are in this book, whether you're in Malachi, whether you're in Micah, whether you're in Matthew, there's a road to get to Christ. Put your finger on any verse in this Bible and you can get to Christ. There is a road to get to him. And if that's true, there is a significant implication for us this morning. It may seem obvious to you, but it is one that we have to nail down. If every text in this Bible connects to Christ, then our Christology, our knowledge of Christ, has to come from every text in this Bible. Do you see that connection? We can't just pick and choose one or two of our favorite verses We can't just pick a song from the Gettys and pick a song from Drew Hodge and there's our Jesus. We can't do that. We have to build our Christology. Our Christology has to be grounded in every text in the Bible. If we're going to have good Christology, we have to have good biblical theology. If we are going to know the most important question in history, we have to know the most important book in history if we're going to say with Peter you are the Christ the son of the living God with all of the layers of meaning that title deserves well you have to know all the layers all the pages of this book you may be thinking Caleb I I read my Bible I do I read it every morning but I just I don't know it like I want to Amen. I am right there with you. But praise God, we have come to the right church, haven't we? We have come to a church that every Sunday morning, Christ will be preached, no matter the text. So make Sunday morning a priority. Make the Sunday morning sermon a priority. It will teach you how to see Christ in all of Scripture. We have also come to a church, praise God, that there are men and women in this church that know the Bible better than you and I do. So maybe One big application you can take from today is find someone in this church who knows the Bible better than you do and ask them to read the Bible with you. I know they'd be happy to do that. Maybe you're thinking, I, don't, I know my New Testament pretty well, but I really need to know my Old Testament a lot better. That's all right. Ask a, a Stacy Pugh or a, a Frank Ortiz to read the book of Genesis with you. I know this sister and this brother, and they would love to read Genesis with you. We need to start at the beginning. We cannot have a Christology that starts at Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, can we? It needs to start where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And then our Christology moves to Genesis 1-2. And then it continues in Genesis 1-3. And it just keeps going and going and going until Revelation. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to break out into groups and we are going to read the whole Bible today. No. <laughs> I'm obviously kidding. But that is the idea, right? We have to let the story unfold. Like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, we have to start at page one and move to the end of the book. Now, you guys know this. You could get onto to SparkNotes. You never have to read Chronicles of Narnia. You never have to read the Lord of the Rings. And you can get all of the definitions. You can get all of the themes from SparkNotes. Someone could do that. Some of you guys are feeling righteous indignation about this theoretical person right now. No, you can't do that. You've got to read it all the way through. You're praying imprecatory psalms of judgment on this poor person on Sparknotes. But you guys know this. You cannot get the full meaning of Aslan or the king by going to Sparknotes. You need to let the story unfold. You'll miss all the layers if you do not start at the beginning. And to get all the layers of meaning, you need to read all the pages. You've got to let the story unfold. And like the Chronicles of Narnia, or like the Lord of the Rings, or like a trip from Brighton to London, the path to Christ unfolds. And a trip from Brighton to London isn't going to look the same, will it? You know, no, a trip from Brighton to London, you're going to the start of the English Channel, and you're going to go through valleys, and you're going to go through some hills, and you're going to eventually, right before you get into London, you're going to cross the River Thames. It's the same with Scripture. It does not all look the same. We start in creation. We go into the fall of sin. We climb back up the mountain of Calvary into the mountain of redemption. And we end with new creation. That's the scenery. That's what we're looking at. But how do we see what we're supposed to see? We're in our little apartment in Brighton, and we are thinking, how am I going to get to London? How am I going to see all that I'm supposed to see on my way to London? I've got my finger on numbers 2-2, two, two, I'm thinking, how am I going to get from my little apartment in Brighton all the way to London. You're in your driveway and you have to think, do I turn left or do I turn right? When I come to that first round about what do I do? Left, right, straight, I don't know. You want to get to Christ. You're like the old minister in Spurgeon's story. You want to get to him. And I love that heart. God, give us that heart at this church. That no matter whether we have to go through hedge or ditch, we will get at him. We will get to Christ. It doesn't matter whether we have to go through hedges or ditches. We will get to him. I love that heart. But there's a road. There's a path to London. The Bible has given us a roadmap. And on this roadmap, there are major highways that connect Brighton to London. And you can get on to these major roads from anywhere in the Bible, and they will take you to Christ. Peter got his answer from these covenants. We're going to eventually walk through each one of these six major biblical covenants, but I'll just give it to you guys right now. The six major biblical covenants is we got the covenant with creation, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. If you guys miss those, we'll get back to them, so don't worry about it. Dr. Gentry and Dr. Wellem, who Chase mentioned earlier, say that these six major biblical covenants are the backbone of the meta-narrative of Scripture, the backbone of the meta-narrative of Scripture. They are the to use the, the illustration from Spurgeon. they are the main roads that connect Brighton to London. And if you're thinking right now, who says? Who says that they're the backbone of the meta-narrative? Who says that they are the main roads? Caleb, I was at church this past Sunday, Galatians 1. It doesn't matter whether Dr. Gentry and Dr. Wellam are angels. I don't care, Caleb, if you are the Apostle Paul I want some biblical proof before I say that this is the backbone of the meta narrative of Scripture. And that is the right response. Ryan said it well. The message is greater than the messenger. So we want to, if we're going to use this as the main structure of our Bible, we need some biblical proof. Well, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. And when you ask who says the covenants are the backbone of the meta narrative. Who says? That's a great question. Who says that the, back, the covenants are the backbone of the meta-narrative? I believe the, cov- the Bible says that. I think the Bible gives us that. And this will not be a lecture on the covenants, and we're not going to go to every verse or argument for that structure. For that, I would recommend Dr. Wellam's book, God the Son Incarnate, if you want to do a deeper dive into that. But... Here is one argument. Whether you're in Isaiah or the Pauline epistles, or really anywhere in the Bible, you'll notice a common theme. When the b- biblical authors summarize the story line of scripture to strengthen their point or to speak about the new covenant, they reference the major biblical covenants all the time. Whether you're in Paul or in Isaiah, you see them referencing these six major biblical covenants all the time. We see this in Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55. We see it all over the book of Romans. We we will see it in our Galatians series all over the Bible. And if the biblical authors keep on going to this well of the major biblical covenants to build the storyline of scripture, well, we need to go to that well too. We should view the covenants as the backbone of the meta-narrative because Scripture views the covenants as the backbone of the meta-narrative. Y'all with me? That was a lot. (laughs) We're about halfway through, and I, I know that's a lot, but... I know, and I know this is a uh, this is a smart church. So some of you guys are hearing this, and you hear the phrase the backbone of the meta narrative, and that really gets you going. <laughs> you're uh, you're excited about this uh, this quest that we have in front of us to find Christ in all of Scripture. You hear every text connects to Christ. Amen. Let's get to work. Let's find out how every text connects to Christ. You've got your your theological sweatband on, and you're you're stretching your biblical muscles, and you're ready to roll. You are encouraged and motivated right now. But I know there's got to be some other people in this room who are more like me, uh, maybe not as smart as some people in this room, and right now you're feeling a little bit discouraged. Every text connects to Christ, Caleb, really? I'm in Judges, (laughs) <laughs> I'm in Judges right now. And I just saw this lady drive a tent peg through this guy's skull. Where is Christ in the tent peg, Caleb? You feel like you're in a back alley in Brighton and you see so many side streets, you see so many roundabouts. I've got a long ways to go to get to London. But remember remember, you have a map. Remember, the Bible has given you a road map and it will send you on in the right direction. Find the closest major biblical covenant and it will take you to London. I should say something else before we dive into each of these major biblical covenants. is that this is not the only way to get to Christ. The covenants are not the only way to get to Jesus There are many different tools that we could add to our tool belt. We could look at the fallen condition of humanity and how Christ answers that fallen condition. We could look at the historical and literary context of passages and how that gets us to Christ. We could look at typology and themes and how that gets us to Christ. There are many different tools we could add to our tool belt. But if the the first thing that I wanted us to nail down was that every text in the Bible connects to Christ. The second thing I want us to nail down is that the covenants form the main structure to get to Jesus. They are the spine. They are the main highway that gets us to Christ. In one sense, they are the tool belt. So that for the rest of our talk, we're just going to look at these covenants. We're going to see how Peter gets his answer from them. So let's see how they prepare us to affirm both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. We're going to leave a lot of meat on the bone. There will be a lot of things that we will not be able to cover. So if you have questions, you can send all of your questions to Chase for the Q&A. I know that he would love to answer them. But if you can imagine our road from Brighton to London, one side of the road will set the stage for Christ's humanity, and the other side will prepare us to affirm his deity. One road, two sides. So 10 and 2, let's take a trip from Brighton to London. Let's start at the beginning. Covenant with creation our Bibles actually begin with a covenant. In the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God enters into covenant relationship with humanity. And he wants them, as his image bearers, to multiply and fill the earth and to reflect him. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God is super clear. He wants global worship. In chapter 2, he underlines and highlights this point. And then, chapter 3. We don't get three chapters into our Bibles before the story takes a nosedive. Sin comes into the world and it corrupts everything and it separates us from our God. We need God to step in and he will do it. He promises in that very same chapter that he will save us. He promises to step in and save, but his promise also includes a faithful human. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God steps in, But we also need a faithful human to step up. Well, it's not going to happen anytime soon, will it? What happens in chapter 4? Chapter 4, just one chapter after, we get a homicide. And then the next chapter is things just go from bad to worse. Things get so bad, God is eventually fed up with humanity. He sends a catastrophic flood to destroy the whole earth except for Noah and his family, right? He saves Noah and his family. Genesis 8 and 9, God enters into a covenant relationship with Noah. And he says that he will never destroy the earth with a flood again. He never will. And he also commissions them as image bearers. He recognizes their status as image bearers. And then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds a little bit like Eden, doesn't it? Except Noah cannot get off the mountain without sinning. On the same mountain that God enters into covenant relationship with him, Noah sins. God steps in, but humanity steps back and sits down. God must save, but where is our Genesis 315 man? He's going to come from a man who can't have children. Abrahamic covenant. God finds an elderly couple at a bingo tournament in Ur, and he enters into covenant relationship with Abraham. In Genesis 12 and 15, he promises to bless the nations through Abraham. And he does not only give Abraham kids. He's going to make Abraham into a great nation the nation of Israel. And he's so committed to this plan, he's so committed to his covenant relationship with Abraham, that he's willing to put his life on the line. In Genesis 15, we get this confirmation ceremony where God enters into covenant relationship with Abraham. And there's animal sacrifices here. And and Abraham, he's the one who cuts the animals and he splits them into you while Abraham is sleeping, God walks through the sacrifices. And if you're from the ancient Near East, you would know exactly what God is doing. He is making a bold declaration that he's saying, you see these animals? If anyone breaks this covenant, may what's happening to these animals happen to me. If Abraham or his family breaks this covenant, may these may what happened to these animals happen to me god steps in and if and when humanity steps back and sits down god will take the punishment how 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 god cannot die how can god make such a promise let's keep reading the mosaic covenant the book of exodus God sees Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandchildren in slavery in Egypt, and he sends a rescue mission to get them out of slavery. He takes them from Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea. And on top of a mountain for everyone to see, he enters into covenant relationship with Israel, his people. He says, this is my people, and I am their God. He wants the nations to see that they can look to the nation of Israel, and if they look to them, they will reflect who God is. We just have one problem, though, don't we? When the nations look to Israel, what do they see? They do not see a God merciful and gracious. When they look at Israel, they don't see a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What do they see? Injustice, unrighteousness, sin. Israel lies about who their God is. God steps in, but Israel steps back and sits down. Where is our Genesis 315 man? It's becoming very clear. God's people need a representative. They need a king. Because God is gracious and merciful, he gives them a king. In second, Samuel 7, God enters into covenant fellowship with David. And in this covenant, the king represents the people. To think of God's people is to think of God's king. And to think of God's king is to think of God's people. So the king will just be faithful. God will bless his people. If the king will just be faithful, he will be able to bless the nations. We still have a problem, though. When the nations look at David, what do they see? Adultery. Murder. When the nations look at David's son, what do they see? Polygamy. Unrighteousness. God steps in, but God's kings are stepping back and sitting down. Will we ever get our Genesis 3.15, man? Will he ever come? Thousands of years since Genesis 3, humanity has made it super clear. We can't save ourselves. We can't crush the head of the serpent. God must save us. God alone. But what about that Genesis 3.15 promise? What about God promising to use Abraham and David? And this is the tension. This is the tension of the Old Testament. God alone can save, but he has promised to use a faithful human representative. The Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, they they prophesy about a new covenant, a coming covenant, where God will give his people new hearts. He will save them from their sins. But in this new covenant, they also talk about how God is going to stick to his promise to David. He's going to stick to his promise to raise up one of David's sons. And one of his sons will step forward and stand up. He will exemplify justice and righteousness. He will pay the penalty for the sins of God's people. God will forgive his people through the sacrifice of a man. But how? How is this all going to come together? And we know the end of the story, and so you are answering it right now as I'm asking the question, but if you can just imagine putting yourself in Israel's shoes as they see their Old Testament coming to a close and they see this tension of that God alone can save. But he's also promised to use a faithful human. If you're in Israel's shoes, that is really difficult to figure out. You cannot figure it out. How will this happen? How is this all going to work? On one side of the road, we see that God alone will save. But on the other side of the road, we see that we need a faithful human. Who will relieve the tension of this seemingly unsolvable problem? The Christ. The Son of the living God. God the Son incarnate. Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the only one who saves us and can pay the penalty for our sins. He is the only one who can bring us to God. He is the only one who can relieve this tension. And this is why what Peter said has to be true. If Peter is not right, then we are still left in our sins. Jesus is the only way to God. And he is the only one who can fulfill the covenants. Jesus fulfills the covenant with creation. He is the greater Adam who will crush the serpent's head and open up the new Eden. And he is God who speaks new life into dead hearts. He is God the Son incarnate. As God gave Eve life through Adam's side, Jesus gives us life through his own pierced side. He is Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus fulfills the Noahic covenant. Safe in the ark of Christ, Jesus saves us from the storm of judgment our sins deserve. And he will bring us to the new heavens and the new earth, a new Eden, a mountain that will not be touched by sin. He is God, the Son incarnate. He treads on the head of the chaotic waters of evil, and he creates a new place for his people. He is Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. Through Christ, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be blessed. Blessed with a blood-bought blessing. Like animals split apart in Genesis 15, Jesus spreads his arms apart on the cross and takes the punishment for our sins. He is God, the Son incarnate. He is Abraham's great-grandson, and he is Abraham's Lord. He is Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. He resists temptation in the wilderness of Matthew 4, and he obeys the law perfectly. And as God prepared a meal for Israel's leaders on Mount Sinai to confirm the Old Covenant, Jesus communes with all his people at the Lord's Supper to confirm the New Covenant. He is God, the Son incarnate. He is the true Passover lamb who takes the punishment for our sin and he is God who rescues us from the chains of sins and leads us in a new exodus. He is Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. He represents the people of God perfectly and he is the God who builds himself a new temple, a new covenant people and a new heavens and a new earth. He is God, the son incarnate. He looks at the giant of sin standing in front of his people and as God and as our Genesis 3.15 man, he crushes his head. He is Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus fulfills the new covenant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he is the God who will make that happen. Our maker is our husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is our redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. He is God, the Son incarnate. He triumphs over the evil and the old creation. And he speaks new creation into existence. Spiritual life now and glorified bodies and a new heavens and a new earth very soon. He is Christ, the Son of the living God, who is like our God. No one. No one is like our God. No one is like our Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. But the Word became flesh. Jesus is human. He is Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God, the Son incarnate. And this God has revealed himself to us in this book. Why? Why? Is it because of us? Because of who we are? No, we're sinners. He revealed himself to us in this book because he loves us. That's the only reason. For the praise of his glory, he loves us. He actually wants us to know him. He actually wants us to know him. You may have been wondering during this talk, Caleb, why the covenants? Why did God decide to take the covenants as the backbone of the meta narrative, as the main highway from Brighton to London? Why did he do that? That's a great question. He did it because at the heart of the story, the very heart of the story of Scripture, we see a God who wants to enter into covenant relationship with us. He decided to structure the Bible in such a way to let us know that he wants us to know him. The very binding of God's word is the binding of God's heart to God's people. It's not because, not because of us. It's because he wants to. Because he wants us to know In one sense, it's so simple. A four-year-old can know him. He's designed it to be so simple that all you need to know is that you need Jesus to pay the price for your sins. To forgive you of your sins. But in another sense, he's made it to where the smartest person in this room cannot exhaust all the paths to him. We cannot exhaust all the paths to London. And even on the roads that we have been on many times, there's always new things to see. We will always need the Holy Spirit to take us to London. But it's a journey we were made for. We were made to go to London. When we cross over the River Thames and get to London... When we go from Genesis 1-1 to Matthew 16-16 and our hearts confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our souls find rest. They are at home. We're also waiting for our final home, aren't we? We see Jesus in the text, but we want to see him face to face. We see him in Matthew, but we want to see him in heaven. And one day we will. One day our faith will turn to sight and we will see him as he is. And everything we've been talking about, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the major biblical covenants, they will all feel like the beginning of a great story. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis finishes the chronicles of Narnia, the story of Narnia, with a preamble to another story listen to what he says. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. When we cross over that Jordan River and we step into the new heavens and the new earth, we will start a journey that will never end. For all of eternity, we will know him more and more. Our conversations with him will never be boring. We will never run out of things to know about him. When we cross that Jordan River, it will feel like stepping foot in London and having a whole city to see. Except this city does not end. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going going for all of eternity. We're still waiting for that book to come out, aren't we? But until then, let's know this book. Let's know what it means for Christ to be the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, you decided to reveal yourself to us through your son. And we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him as Christ, the son of the living God. Father, we're thankful for this morning where we get to be able to stare at your son, Jesus. We do not deserve this. All we ever did was sin against you and you have saved us and you have created an event on a Saturday morning where we just get to think and to praise and to worship him. You are good to us. So we thank you. We thank you for all these things and we ask you that you would be with us throughout the remainder of this seminar. In your son's name, amen. Well, like Chase said, we are going to take a five-minute break, so um, take five minutes to let your minds unravel for a little bit, and then come back and be able to listen to our brother, Marshall. Thanks, guys.
2: Am I on yet? Oh, there I am. Okay, all right. Well, let's go ahead and take our seats. We're going to go ahead and begin our second segment. We're excited to see everyone here. We've been excited to study Christology under the guidance of Dr. Wellum. I know all the brothers have been uh, excited about sharing this truth with you. If we think of the title, Who Do You Say That I Am? In my segment, we're going to be really modifying that question. Who do you say, or who does the early church say that I am? And I'll be basically covering the first five centuries of Christological thought. I have three sections to the segment. really is the approach, uh, identifying Christological heresy, And why it matters. And as Caleb mentioned. If we're going to have good Christology. We need to have good biblical theology. And we have the Bible for a reason. Don't we? To study God. That's that's what that means. Theology. To study God. But we must study God through the means of the Bible. For the goal of knowing him. Not just about him. And don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the Bible? It's God's. Word, right? God's word. Well, really, it's God's words. Every word matters in the Bible. Every word matters in the Bible. Think of the verse, for God so loved the world. The for and the so are just as important as God and loved. Theologians have called this plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary, all verbal words, inspiration. God breathes. God is breathing out his words words are important because they give us cohesive thoughts cohesive thoughts give us meaning meaning reveals the intention of the one communicating and think about it god has revealed his intentions he's revealed his intention for your life but he's using uh, and chosen to use through human agents Apostles and prophets, he's hand-selected to write his words. The scriptures say that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Another word, another phrase used is instrumental inspiration. You can think of it as a musician, breathes through a wind instrument, out comes a unique sound. So you can think of Paul or Peter or John as instruments, and God breathing Through them, His words, out comes a distinct sound. Because all Scripture is God-breathed. His words are His will. Therefore, the Bible has authority to speak into your life because it is your Creator speaking to your soul. And He reveals to us who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing. So let me ask you a question. How do you approach the Bible? How do you approach the Bible? I'm not asking how do you interpret it. How do you come to it? What is your heart's posture as you open the Scriptures? It's an important question to ask yourself because there are ways to approach the Bible that are not honoring to the Lord and are not healthy for your soul. Two dangerous postures in approaching the Bible could be one is above or beyond the text. We come above or beyond the text. And that is to say that we come above the text and superimpose upon the text our own interest, things that uh, we desire to see in the text perhaps, merely to look at the Bible through the 21st century cultural lens. Social justice. The Bible does have something to say about that. But if we come to the Bible with the lens of social justice, we may miss the point. Or we can come above the text to critique it. We can say, well, I'll believe it if I can understand it through human means, through human reason. There were, in the 20th century, liberal scholars called higher critical thinkers. What higher critical thinkers would do is they would come to the text and they would say, well... The parting of the Red Sea, did that really happen? Well, let's see if there's some scientific basis for this, and perhaps there is within the Red Sea. Well, that's what happened, really, not the miraculous from God. They come to critique the text rather than to submit to it. They only use human reason to interpret the text. Our, our human reason only goes so far, does it? But there is more in the Scriptures that human reason can comprehend. We certainly do use human reason, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, get this, for spiritual understanding, for spiritual understanding. Well, also in the same category, we can go beyond the text. And this is really the Roman Catholic Church, is it not? Now, the Roman Catholic Church has not always been the Roman Catholic Church. It's been the Catholic Church universal church, but I believe they've gone beyond the text. Now, they believe uh, the veneration of Mary, basically worshiping Mary, and you have to ask, well, where, where is that in the Scripture? There is some places in Scripture that she is called blessed, for sure, but it's really that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has, be, has gone beyond the text. There's a second danger, and that is avoiding the text. Avoiding the text. And this is when we come to the text, and we ask first, what does it mean to me, rather than what does it mean? And when we do that, we can miss the point as well. It's trying to find something behind the text rather than through it. We have to go through the text to find the meaning of the text. This is when you sidestep the meaning of the text in order to glean some spiritual significance. And you may leave the text with a spiritual experience for a moment, but less grounded because you have no theological root. You have heard the saying, theology leads to doxology? The study of God leads to the praising of God. Well, you can also say the root of theology becomes the fruit of doxology. They must be tied together. When they are severed, your fruit will soon wither. It was said of Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century American theologian, his theology was all application. His application, all theology. Because he tied them together. So rather going above and beyond the text or avoiding the text, there's got to be another way, isn't there? There must be another way. And there is another way, a safe way. And that is alignment with the text. Alignment with the text. This is when we come with no lens other than a teachable spirit. We face the text head on. We subject ourselves to it. When we align ourselves with the text, the Spirit of God will align our minds our affections, and our wills to his. The text moves us. And in this posture, perhaps the author will begin to reveal his interpretation and intention. This is really where we need to be, church. There's nothing else like it. To be under the word of God, to subject ourselves to it. Now, you may be asking, Marshall, what does this have to do with the historical development of Christology? Everything. Everything. Because you have to understand, the church fathers, they didn't come to the text, going above and beyond the text or avoid the text, be influenced by some pagan philosophy. They didn't say, well, it seems impossible for God to become man because how can that even happen? Or try to understand the Trinity. They didn't even have language for that. They had to make up words to describe what they saw in the text. Nature in person, if you would say that, was the same thing back in that context. They had to align themselves with the text. And they created words to articulate what they saw, as Brett will share with us. And it's not as though all heretics went above and beyond the text of Scripture... But it was the early church's approach and faithfulness to Scripture collectively that enabled them to identify, here it is, gospel-compromising teaching, gospel-compromising teaching, and within the church. Ultimately, it is about the gospel. And two things happen as they align themselves to the text they begin to formulate statements of what they believe about the gospel to sum up and articulate the christian faith known as creeds creeds is comes from the latin credo means just to believe secondly they begin to reject false views of the gospel within the church through councils we actually have examples of both of these in scriptures first we have 1 corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, is really an early form of a creed. You can turn there if you like, but I'll just read verses 3 and 4. For I, Paul speaking, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, alignment language, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So notice the word delivered. That I deliver to you what I also received. Many scholars think that these creeds were, they were formulated, kind of like a catechism, where we would come to understand these doctrines of truth and then pass it along to new believers. Secondly, we have Acts 15. So you can think of Corinthians 15, Acts 15. 15. Remember the number 15. This is really one of the first councils that we have. You have in 1 Corinthians 15 confirming of the gospel through a creed. And in Acts 15 you have defending the gospel. So let's take a closer look at the Jerusalem council. You don't need to turn there. I'll just kind of summarize it, but you can if you'd like. In Acts 15 We have a situation that occurs. And first of all, let's just ask, what is a church council? Well, it's a meeting of church leaders to discuss a theological or practical crisis of the Christian faith. And to come to a consensus based on the biblical text of Scripture. So Acts 15 is not meant to directly teach us how to conduct a council, but it will be used as a model in church history. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, has four important elements I want us to consider. First, a potentially erroneous teaching of the Christian faith. Second, church leaders are gathered. Third, scriptural inquiry. Fourth, a consensus. So you'll see in verse 1 a potentially erroneous teaching. Certain Jewish believers were saying to Gentile believers... Well, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Galatians 1, we've heard that from Pastor Ryan. In verse 6, you have church leaders. The apostles and elders are present to consider the matter. Verse 15, you have scriptural inquiry. The apostle James quotes a collection of scriptures as the basis for their decision. He says, the prophets agree. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos agree. Is who he quotes. In verse 22, we have a consensus. They make a decision and write a letter to the Gentiles saying, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the church models the Jerusalem Council in the following centuries as they develop biblical Christology. We have four major councils regarding Christology. We have the Council of Nicaea. That's 325. This rejects the view that Jesus is a created being. We have the Council of Constantinople, 381. This rejects the view Jesus is only half human. The Council of Ephesus, 431 rejects the view that Jesus has two persons. And the Council of Chalcedon, 451, rejects the view that Jesus' humanity was overtaken by his divinity and further articulates Christology. The church also has used two terms to describe truth and error. The first being orthodoxy. Ortho comes from the Greek. It means straight. Doxy can mean glory, but it can also mean opinion. So something like the straight opinion. And secondly, heresy. What does heresy really mean? Well, the word heretic is actually in the Bible. It's found in Titus 3.10 and other places too, in the King James Version. And it literally means one who chooses, but implies one who chooses his own way and is decisive about it as well. One way to to define heresy is its veering away from the straight opinion, orthodoxy, of the biblical teaching understood by the collective church. Dr. Ryan Reeves, professor of church history at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, defines heresy this way. Heresy is the attempt to explain or resolve mystery? The attempt to explain or resolve mystery. And, and is it not mystery that we're dealing with? When one truth is stressed above the other, it's very easy to compromise the other, such as stressing the love of God over the justice of God. Maybe may be helpful for us to think of an analogy. You can think of like an ancient city with two main gates, And both gates really need to be guarded, don't they? If the guards just move over to one gate, well, the other gate will be compromised. They move through the other gate, the other gate will be compromised. They both have to be guarded. And in Christology, the gates of Christ's full deity and the gate of his full humanity have to be closely guarded. Why? The enemy is always attacking. Always attacking. Three things to consider as we encounter Christological heresies. Not all heresy is created equal. Some dishonor the Lord outright, others compromise the integrity of, the, of salvation. But as you begin to unfold the logic behind it, their theological conclusions, yet they may be individuals with saving knowledge. It, it is true. Second, the proponents are most often overreacting to another heresy. Knee jerk reaction. Thirdly, the proponents are typically influenced by human logic or human philosophy, and this is key, over the biblical text. Over the biblical text. But heresy does help us in a couple ways. It helps the church. How does it help? It forces the church to identify essential doctrines of the faith, and it helps the church articulate the essential doctrines. And that for the building up of the church in love. Love for God, love for his people. And yes, the pursuit of truth is to fuel expression of love. So as we begin to encounter these Christological heresies, as we take a look at them, before I do that, I do want to introduce a couple things to you, a couple Schools of thought that were developing around this time. Two trends of thinking. One is, God came down to save by becoming our representative and substitute. This is kind of what Caleb was mentioning. This is actually what our church believes as well. But you have to understand, in the early church, there were these two main trends that were happening. They didn't really have that language, that the articulation uh, to uh, to develop the theology of substitutionary atonement. They were, they were developing in that. But they did know it. They did believe it. And two biblical truths behind this view of God coming down as a representative is one, God saves alone. Secondly, God's law demands proper restitution. They both have to go together. As an example, if I totaled your Toyota 4Runner, let's say I did, And I replaced it with a Honda Civic. That wouldn't do, right? Uh, For a number of reasons. You're like, I'm not really a Honda person. I need my Toyota back. Well, we could possibly negotiate something, sure. But it's not so with God. God demands proper restitution. It's not just logically so. It's not just, well, God's perfect and holy and that's lo- that makes logical sense. But rather, it's in the law of God. Eye for an eye. Ear for an ear. Foot for a foot. Right? Not ear for a hand. Well, that would do. They're both body parts. Won't it do? Not so with God. The law of God is actually the expression of the nature of God. And so we have perfect law. I tell you what, Friends. You're going to want this justice. You're going to need this justice when it comes to Christology. And this is what the church is starting to realize as they develop their theology. I want you to think of the great exodus of Israel. Exodus chapter 3, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and he says this, I, Yahweh, have come down I have come down. Now, we know that it's a physical deliverance, is it not? It really is. I mean, there's some spiritual, spiritual implications to it. But it really is a physical deliverance, that they're under slavery, the Egyptians. So Yahweh comes down. Then we read, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire. But the exodus of God's people is a massive foreshadow of a future deliverance. But this deliverance will be not just physical, spiritual as well. Body and soul. So is the angel of the Lord, even if you think it's the pre-incarnate Christ or not, is that going to be, is he going to be a fitting redeemer? Perhaps he's overqualified for that. Will he need to humble himself further? The church says yes. Human for human. So the great I am comes down. And he becomes man. All right, I have a reading assignment for you. Do a little bit of homework this weekend. I want you to read Exodus 3, John 6, Romans 5. Exodus 3, you'll see in the first few verses, verse 8, God coming down, the one I just mentioned. But John 6, you're going to see Jesus saying these phrases, I have come down. But I want you to know in the context of the I am statements, what are the I am statements? Yahweh statements. I am God. I am am God come down as the bread of life. Then I want you to take that knowledge and go to Romans 5. Romans 5 is going to be the representative of this same person, God, Son of God, as then the representative for mankind, for his people. Well, the second view first, we have God come down to be our substitute. The second would be God came down to give us grace. And that's wonderful. God came down to give us grace, grace for humanity. That is true. But the problem is, not so much as our representative, just to give us some grace. Give us grace that we may perhaps live a little bit better life. Perhaps know God to some degree, but know things about God, perhaps. So they're not so much concerned about how God comes down, rather he does and gives me grace. Grace. It's going to be driven more by philosophy rather than theology. I need to to share with you the day that I invited Mormons into my house. Okay, I know some of you are freaking out a little bit because that's not in the Bible. How would you do such a thing? Well, I'm of the persuasion that individuals inviting other individuals into the house back in the early church, a little bit different than now. Just think of it this conversation outside, conversation inside, okay? It was actually a time where uh, my wife and I were just married, didn't have kids yet, so there was, there was a moment that I had to, to talk with these, these two individuals. And I'll tell you what, they talk about grace. They talk about grace. They talk about grace all the time. And isn't it confusing sometimes? Wait, don't they, don't they believe the same thing, that, that God gives us grace in Christ? Isn't Christ wonderful and give you grace? Well, come to find out that it's not God come down to give us grace. God's grace is himself coming down as our representative. That's the grace that we need. So it's the type of grace that we need. Not just the word grace. As we move now into the heresies, I want to divide them in three sections. The denial of Christ's full deity. The denial of Christ's full humanity. The denial of Christ's complete unity of these two natures. And I'll have two heresies per category. A lot of information here. I'm going to try to divide it up as best I can. But the first category is the denial of Christ's deity. One heresy in the early church was Ebionism. Ebionism is actually the second century extension of the Jewish Christians that we find in Acts 15 and Galatians. They believed Jesus was the Christ, chosen Messiah to pl- complete God's salvific work, but not God come down. Not God come down. Rather, since Jesus, fully man of course, kept the law perfectly, God adopted him as his unique son. This is a doctrine known as adoptionism. The Ebionites held to adoptionism, saying that since he did keep that law, he, he has the right now to be the son of God. So he wasn't the son of God eternally. He becomes the son of God, the unique adopted son of God. And certainly, yes, we get, they get grace in their belief through that adopted son. Well, this heresy was fairly short-lived. <laughs> and as we move on to the next heresy, I, I do need to introduce a Trinitarian heresy first so that we have a proper context. You know, the church has always held to a Trinitarian uh, thought or uh, formulation, though not articulated as it is now. But you have in the 2nd century and 3rd century a man by the name of Sibelius. Sibelius began to teach what is known as modalism. Many of you have probably heard of that term. Modalism sees a oneness of God and the threeness of God. In Scripture, they do see that. But they say this, God manifests himself in three modes. One God, three masks. Father takes the mask off. Son takes the mask off. Spirit takes the mask off modalism. It's very logical in its understanding of the Trinity, so you can see how it's attractive to understand this oneness of God and threeness of God. But it's not a biblical concept that we see in Scripture. Think of Jesus' baptism, where we have the Son of God being baptized, we have the Spirit descending upon Him, and we have the voice of the Father. Well, then comes a man by the name of Origen. He's a prominent theologian of his day, and he's in opposition to modalism. Origen stresses the threeness of God in terms of subordination. Now, subordination is the idea that the three persons have certain roles the father chooses, the son acts. To make that choice possible. And the Spirit applies. Or you can even think of the idea of the Spirit's role as pointing us to Christ. Christ's role, pointing us to the Father. You can think of that uh, aspect in Scripture as well. However, Origen's use of subordination influenced a man by the name of Arius. Arius... He was from Alexandria in Egypt. He was also anti-modalism, just like Origen. But his emphasis on uh, the word subordination was on sub. So he took that title sub and he emphasized it beyond the role of the person of Christ to then the nature of Christ in relation to his father. So now he's under the father in nature rather than under him in role. And to uphold the oneness of God, he makes the Son a supreme creature. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, it's just his wills. Their wills are one, right? Well, Arianism was the most threatening teaching of its time, of of this time in the early church. So in the year 325, the Council of Nicaea convened. Approximately 300 bishops over the entire Roman Empire, from east and west, attended and they condemned Arianism as heretical. Later, the Nicene Creed is developed to articulate this relationship between the father and the son. Well, today, the influence of Arianism Arianism is still alive. The most common religions that hold to a form of Arianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Seventh-day Adventists. So just to recap here, the two heresies that deny the deity of Christ, Ebionism, Jesus became the adopted son of God, Arianism, Jesus is a supreme creature. Secondly, we have the denial of Christ's humanity. And there is a heresy, really the first heresy, in the first century, and that's docetism. Docesis is a Greek word that means to appear. So these individuals said, well, Jesus... God coming down, he didn't really have a human body. It just appeared that he had a human body. And this really stems from the Platonic thought that the material world is evil. Man is inherently evil by design. Well, we know that's a problem because man was created good. Though due to the fall and the sin of man, we are innately evil. Through and through we're evil, but not inherently, not by design. And we are capable of redemption. Praise God for that. The Apostle John is the one that rejects this heresy. You're probably familiar with these verses, 1 John 1.1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen and looked. Okay, yeah, we've seen and looked. That we've touched. So John is hitting this docetism heresy. Secondly, we have Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism was in the 4th century and it was taught by an individual by the name of Apollinarius. He was very pro-Nicene in his theology. God Jesus is fully God, fully God. But when he would read John 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh. Now Caleb said, Man, he became human. Well, Paul and would say, no, he, it was kind of a shell for the divine logos. It wasn't really man, it was a flesh. It was just the casement of the divine logos. Dr. Wellam explains it this way. It's as though he taught one person in one and a half natures. Right? We have one person, fully God and fully man. Well, it's one and a half So he believed that Jesus didn't have a human mind or a human soul. And you have to give him some credit. His his approach was, we want to protect the sinlessness of Christ. Probably stemmed from a Platonic view as well, I imagine. But Apollinarianism is rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381. So recap here. Jesus wasn't human at all. He just appeared to be. Apollinarianism, he was only half human. Thirdly, we have the denial of the unity of Christ's nature. So how the two natures interact with each other. This is the third category of heresies. We have Nestorianism. Nestorius, he actually believed in the full deity of Jesus and the full humanity of Jesus. But in his thinking, he he couldn't really join the two together. He would later discuss how they they have to be properly joined. We will later discuss how it will need to be properly joined for proper redemption. But this is what he would say, that the Son of God came down but assumed a human nature and a human person, so we have one person, divine, who has a divine nature. Then we have another person who's human and human nature as well. Think of the analogy of salvation, right? Where you have God on one side, man on the other, between this huge chasm. And Christ bridges that gap, does he not? Well, in this analogy, stories would break that bridge in half. It's really too persons that we're talking about here. So we do not have a true redemption. And the scriptures do teach that Jesus consciously lives his human life as the eternal son of God, understanding he is one with his father. It's not two persons, but one. So Nestorianism is rejected at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Secondly, under this third category, we have Eutychianism. Eutychus was actually strongly against Nestorianism. So where Nestorius divided those two natures and two persons, Eutychus joined them together in reaction to Nestorianism. But he joined them to blend them. We're going to learn of a term hypostatic union where it's a proper joining Eutychus, though, blended them together. He would say, one nature, another nature, put them together, one new nature. That's how we can see that. One divine, yet sort of human nature. But the problem is that the divinity, or the humanity of of Christ is swallowed up, so to speak. We have no redeemer, because the human nature of Christ is overtaken by the divine. Because he would say it's the divine that is the nature that is prominent. Eutychianism is rejected at the council of Chalcedon in 451. And Chalcedon is really the great Christological council. It really is. In October 451, 520 bishops meet in the city of Chalcedon, which is modern-day Turkey. And its primary pers- purpose was to address all the heretical views of Christ up to this point. The Council of Chalcedon developed the Chalcedonian definition. It addressed all that we all that we have discussed so far: Docetism, Adoptionism held by the Ebionites, Modalism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, Historianism, Eutychianism. I appreciate this quote by Dr. Stephen Willem. He says this, the Chalcedonian definition, ultimately, it is only Scripture that can serve as our final authority, but we neglect the Chalcedonian definition at our peril. What is needed is further reflection on Scripture in light of Chalcedon, and in fact, this is precisely what occurred in subsequent years of church history. Chalcedon did not end all Christological discussion. Instead, it continued to guide and direct further thought in light of more questions and challenges. So there you have it, heresies. So as we move on to our last closing section, why does this all matter? Why does this matter? Two main reasons. First, because truth matters. Truth matters. Truth matters because truth sets us free. So we can think about John 8 when Jesus says, That great statement that the truth will set you free, free from sin, free to live for God. So truth is necessary for our justification, for us to be right before God. But there are other truths that are necessary, and all other truths really, are necessary for our sanctification. I think of Ephesians 4, verse 15, when Paul says, Rather speaking the truth in love... The truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. There is some relation between truth and growth. Secondly, it's because our complete redemption matters. Our complete redemption matters. The church fought to preserve the Christian message of redemption for mankind. I love this quote. One church father says this, Famous statement. What is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. Speaking of redemption. So if the Son of God came down only with a human body and not a human soul, then our souls are left unredeemed. If the Son of God came down only with a human soul and only appeared to have a body, then our bodies will be left unredeemed. But no, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in fact, came down, took to himself a human body and a human soul with a human mind, affections, and will, that you may experience the joy of being human. That's the gospel. Think of Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.16, when he says, we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 1.8 how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Or the author of Hebrews, chapter 13, 21. He says, Now may God equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus. Mind, affection, willing, all come from the humanity of Christ he has to be human for us for us to have a renewed mind in order to feel the things that we need to feel that are pleasing to God and do the things that are pleasing to him that they may be aligned properly for God's glory but he is also God because he is also God the Lord Jesus we have peace with God we have restitution with God there was no one else that who could come down and do that. No one else on the earth that could do that. Only God himself. So when we read in Galatians, when he gave himself for our sins, don't think just the penalty removed. Think of himself giving himself of his nature to you. That's the gospel far beyond just forgiveness of sin, we get to be human again through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we seek. So unbeliever, either in the room or online, the Lord does not promise comfort in this life, but he does promise conformity to himself by trusting him who gives us comfort in all things. So, I'll end with this statement. When we rightly approach the word of God and rightly submit to the spirit of God, we will rightly see the son of God incarnate dimly now, yet one day, face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for coming down as our representative may we live in light of this truth through faith dependence upon you in all things in your name amen we're going to go ahead and take another five minute break and then we'll reconvene
3: well good morning welcome back if you'd find your seats uh it's a privilege to be here with you today uh as jay said my name is brett landis Uh, For my section this morning, we'll be covering the theological definitions. So uh, we'll be looking at seven theological definitions that pertain to Christology. And you may be thinking, all right, we've covered kind of the biblical theology, the biblical basis. That's got to be primary. We've covered the historical development. That's good and secondary. Do we really need to bother with these dusty definitions, right? Isn't this something for the theologians? Well, I think there are good reasons why we as the church need to think through these things and we need to think through them clearly. So first of all, these terms actually do help us to know God. And that is eternal life. Jesus says in John 17:3, "This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." So these are our living truths that enliven us and the knowledge of God is the common heritage of the church. It's your inheritance from God to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. Do you walk with God? I trust that you do. And if you walk with Him, you have to know Him. That's what it means to walk with Him. Love, in that sense, seeks knowledge. Second, I think that you'll find these are actually very familiar ideas as you read Scripture. Theology is not some special purpose construct that just exists like for the fringe of Christianity out there somewhere. It's central, and so these terms help communicate and clarify what we find in the Bible. These terms give us a handle, so to speak, for the big ideas that arise from the text. And so the better we know them, the better we ought to be able to understand Scripture. Third, I think we can't understand the world that we live in without understanding Christology, and that's a very big claim. But think about what Paul says in Ephesians 1.10 that all things are being summed up in Christ. Or the fact that in Colossians 1.16, Paul says, all things were made through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the person upon whom all of history is converging. He is the one person who gives meaning to each of the individual arcs of our life. Our stories find their meaning in him. So rather than ask, is this worthwhile? I think a better question is, can you afford to not know Christology? Consider the cost of not knowing. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with the extra-biblical theological language, right? There's Greek and Latin, and these, uh, it's easy to get lost in these kind of terms, as we'll see in a bit. Don't let the language intimidate you. These topics actually push human language to and probably beyond its limits, especially when we get to the, the nature and the character of God. So perhaps we could say the infinite God could never be circumscribed by finite human language. So with regard to language, I need to mention a few other things. Analogies are commonly used when describing God. And that's okay, but we have to be careful when we use them. Analogies are easy, but they can also be dangerous. They almost inevitably, when we're talking about the character of God, they almost inevitably lapse into heresy. So if we're going to use them, we should always establish where they fall short. I'm going to try and avoid them today. You can grade me later and tell me how I did. On the other hand, uh, if we're not using analogies, we will use some negations. So negations are helpful and they're sometimes necessary. Well, why are negations so helpful? Sometimes we can't always uh, describe exactly what it is about a thing that we're saying. We, We have a hard time saying exactly this is what's right. But we can very clearly point to what's wrong. And so we're going to say, if you're coming to that conclusion that's a wrong conclusion. So we use some negations today. Negations are are not that. And frankly, in some of these areas, there is a great deal of mystery. But I think sometimes we appeal too quickly to mystery because a truth might be hard to grasp or uncomfortable. I want us to remember, we have a great deal of biblical data. God has revealed himself. He's given us his authoritative and sufficient word. And if we lean on that, we have a sure guide So while there is mystery, things that we don't know fully, the things that we do know, we know in truth. The goal of laying out these theological definitions is to establish truthful, clear, worshipful thinking about the identity and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. And the broad pattern today under which we're going to do that is we're going to look at Christ and these theological definitions under three headings. First, His deity. Second, His humanity and then third, the unity of those two. So deity, humanity, unity. So to begin with, uh, we have to understand the deity of Christ. And to understand more about who Christ is, we need to define two foundational terms. And these are common words, or words I'm sure you've heard before, but in this specific context, they're given a very specific definition. The first and foundational term is the term person and uh, we'll have it up on the screen here in case you're wondering about the Greek or Latin spellings. And this is from the Greek word hypostasis. So when you need to, what you need to know when we think about the term person is you need to understand that person in this theological context answers the question, who is it? person in this context answers the question who is it so the person relates to the identity that is what we could call the personal identity right the person is the part of us that can be specifically identified and that relates to others person does not equate to human being in this use that's how we commonly use it right someone takes a walk and they said oh i saw something we can ask them what did you see did you see a person and what we mean is do you see a human body you know a human nature an embodied soul another human being that's not how we're using it here We're using it a little more specifically. So the person is the identity of that conscious subject. The person is also the subject. So if you go back to your grammar days, you'll remember in a sentence we have uh, subject and verb agreement. The verb is the action that's being done. The subject, though, is the person, the one who is doing the action. A person is someone who does an action. And another way of thinking about person is that the person is the one who can say, I, in relation to some other you. And it's a part of us that relates. A person has self-consciousness. And once we have multiple persons, people in that sense, relationships are possible. One person can relate to another person. And throughout the Bible, God relates to persons. He speaks with them. He blesses them. He forgives them. God does these things to persons. So what are some biblical examples of person? Maybe this will help clarify. Adam is a person, right? Eve is a person. David is a person. Peter is a person. These are all persons, but there's more. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a person. The angel Gabriel is a person. Even Satan is a person in this theological sense. There's someone that we can identify, that we can name, and we can say, that is somebody, that is an individual identity. So a person answers the question, who is it? And the person is the subject who we say thinks, wills, and acts. And a person does those acts through a nature... There is no person who doesn't have a nature, and so we're going to look at that definition now. Person is our first definition. Our second definition is nature. I should have mentioned uh, the, the word person comes from the Greek word hypostasis. That will become important later. The second term is nature, and this comes from the Greek word ousia. In this context... The word nature answers the question, what is it? Or maybe, what is it like? Nature can be described in terms of attributes, capabilities, and components. Uh, The nature of something is whatever makes that thing what it is. So nature and being and substance are probably all parallel terms we could use to think about. The nature is the attributes that give a thing substance, the form that a thing takes. Nature includes any definitive properties of a thing. So for a human nature... We could say uh, a definitive property of being a human is that a human is an embodied soul. Think about the definitions Marshall gave us during the uh, uh, church history section. A human is an embodied soul. That's a fundamental aspect of what it means to have a human nature. It's important to note not all natures are the same. So there's one nature to humans. There's a divine nature. There is an angelic nature or maybe angelic natures. Stones have natures, right? Everything has its own nature, but not everything's nature is the same. As we said earlier, to connect nature and person, a nature is the thing through which a person acts. A person is the one who acts, but they act through their nature. So if you imagine, you know, you have a cookie jar in your house, you know someone took a cookie, you gather the kids and you say, who did this? You know, the, the guilty kid can't say, oh, my human nature did it. Right? We're asking an identity question. Who did this? You did this. And yeah, you did it through your nature, but there is an identity. There's a person, and we're looking. The human nature is the thing through which, or the nature of anything is the thing through which a person acts. And when we say that there's a rational individual, a person in that sense, someone who can relate, their nature includes a mind, a will, affections, all those kind of things. So just a quick recap. These are foundational terms. Who answers the question Uh, Or, I'm sorry, person answers the question, who is it? And nature answers the question, what is it? And let me give you an illustration that I think will be helpful. Remember uh, the Judge Samson, our good friend Samson. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in power to accomplish a particular deliverance by God's supernatural ability. Right? There are two natures, one divine nature in the Holy Spirit and one human nature in Samson. And there's also two persons, the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of Samson. So we have two natures and two persons. And we could ask, well, who worked that deliverance? Who worked the deliverance through Samson? And there's really uh, two answers, right? The Holy Spirit worked it, and Samson worked it. God worked it through Samson. Both of them are the answer to the who question. And each of them worked according to their natures. Samson did the human thing. He grabbed the jawbone and killed the guys. But the Holy Spirit was also endowing him with special ability. So, two persons, two natures in Samson. In our normal everyday experience, we tend to associate person and nature in a one-to-one correlation. We tend to associate one person with one nature. but That's not always the case. And in light of that, we're going to turn to our third definition, the word Trinity. So, you're probably thinking, why in the world are we covering the Trinity? Why rope that in into a Christological conference, right? Don't we have enough on our plate? I'll submit to you that the Trinity is the vital concept for understanding who God is, and explaining this idea will help to clarify the biblical presentation of who Jesus is. But even more importantly, we need to talk about the Trinity because what we believe is that the foundation of the identity of Jesus Christ is in the Trinity. You cannot fully understand who Jesus is without understanding who the Trinity is. By referring to the Trinity, we're just talking about the God of the Bible. So, again, Don't be intimidated. If you've read Scripture, this is a a familiar truth to you. What is the God of the Bible like? Given the definitions of person and nature above, how should we describe God? Uh, There's a great quote. One author said, Scripture teaches that God is one, yet it also teaches that God is three and that there is a difference between the way that He is one and the way He is three. Let me read that again. Scripture teaches that God is one, yet it also teaches that God is three, and that there's a difference between the way he's one and the way he's three. So we're going to hold these two truths in tension because that's what the Bible does. So God is one in that he only has one divine nature. And what we mean is that there is one and there is only ever one God. So familiarly, uh, familiarly, Deuteronomy 6.4, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one.'" I hope I don't have to convince you that the Bible teaches monotheism, but that's what we're talking about. There's only one God. There is one divine nature in existence, and therefore there is only one God. Well, what's a divine nature? Divine nature is the attributes and the character of the one true and living God. So, for example, he's living. Uh, God is also spirit, as we see in John 4.24. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, unchanging, infinite, the creator of all things, infinitely, infinitely glorious. He is pure, he is holy, he is kind and good. This is the one God from all eternity who will not share his glory with another. As we see in Isaiah 42, 8, this is his nature. But scripture also teaches that God is three and that there are three persons who are all described as God. And these three persons are different but according to the biblical presentation are all equally and fully share the one divine nature. These are not three parts, as, is each, as if each had a third of the divine nature. Not that. None of the three is more God or less God than the other. And so to describe this idea, theologians developed the key idea of homoousios, which you see up on the screen there. This comes from the Nicene Creed. And so this term, if you just break it down, homo means same Usia, as you see from our second definition, means nature. They are of the same nature. So we could say that Jesus is homoousios with the Father. The Spirit is homoousios with the Father and the Son. They are all of the same nature. So within the one nature, there are three individuals we can identify. And not only are there three persons, but they each have unique identities, and they can be distinguished from each other. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're unified in that they share the same divine nature equally but they can't be switched with each other. Their personhood is individual and unique. And their manner of relating to one another is unique. So the Father relates as the Father to the Son. And as the Father to the Spirit. The Son relates as, uh, the, son relates as the Son. The Spirit relates as the Spirit. And we know this because Scripture reveals these internal relationships. These aren't uh, artificial distinctions. or something that we can ignore. And in this relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in spite of their equality, there is also an order to the persons that we see. And this is an order that can't be reversed. The Father works through the Son by the Spirit. Wellam has a quote in the book where he says, The entire Godhead acts in unity, but the Father initiates and acts through the Son and in the Spirit. The Son obeys the Father and works in the Spirit. The Spirit executes the acts of the Father and the Son in power. So this ordering is one of function and not one of nature or being. So in light of the Christological and Trinitarian era that Marshall talked about earlier, this is not subordinationism where we're saying the Father is somehow more God and the Son and the Spirit are somehow we, less. We don't mean that. But we do recognize that even as described in the Scripture, there is a, a, a structure of how they operate, an order in which they operate. Each person is God of himself, autotheos we could say. Yet the three persons innately order themselves in love and mutual submission. And this order explains something like John 14, 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. That's a matter of what we could call personal priority, right? It doesn't deny the full co-equal divinity of the Son, which we see described in the verse like John five twenty three, that Jesus says all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So co-equal honor or when Jesus says that all things that belong to the Father also belong to him and vice versa as in John 16:15 and 17:10. So we're going to refer to them in this order the Father as the first person of the Trinity, the Son as the second person of the Trinity, and the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. And yet we still say that God that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and that there is only one God. So this is where we're going to say there's some mystery. There's just nothing else like this that we can say, that we can look at in the world and say, oh, this is exactly like that other thing. There's just nothing quite like this. The persons of the Trinity are also distinguishable by their actions outside the Trinity, or we could say in relation to the external world. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, we see even from uh, the, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis one twenty six. there's this unmistakable us and our language. And maybe uh, the person of the, the Spirit in the Old Testament particularly stands out as the highly visible one person that we can kind of pick out. Th- these are really easily seen in the New Testament. So the Father sends the Son, as in John 20.21. 20, the Son, upon His ascension, sends the Spirit, as in John 16.7. And in these outward works and relations, we see the individual ordering and the unique work of each person. But the diversity of the persons doesn't negate the radical unity of God's work, because there is one divine nature. We can say that each person in the Trinity works in all His works. So again, we're we're kind of bouncing back and forth between this notion of unity and this notion of diversity. I think. Uh, understanding the, the unity of God's nature in spite of the diversity of persons. helps explains a verse like in John 14, 10 through 11, where Jesus says that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Or in John ten thirty where Jesus says, he and the Father are one. And these are kind of challenging verses to wrap our minds around, but as we make a distinction between person and nature, and we recognize God as one in nature, but three in person, I think we can kind of... Uh, we can begin to put these in a context that helps us. So because of the one divine nature, there's a unity in the external operations of the Trinity, even though they can normally be assigned to a particular person. So, again, let me explain. The Father doesn't become incarnate. So even there's a a unity in their operation, the the person of the Father does not become incarnate. But he does send the Son. The Spirit does not become incarnate. But the Spirit does anoint uh, Jesus, the man, as he as he operates in his ministry. So that's a good example of how we have to hold the oneness and the threeness in tension. United in nature, diverse in persons. Having a conceptual clarity about the Trinity is necessary to reach conceptual clarity regarding Christology. If we don't understand who the Trinity is, we won't be able to really understand who Jesus is. So in order to make sense of Christology, we have to see that God is one God who exists eternally in three equal persons, there's one divine nature and therefore one God, but there are three co-equal persons. The second person of the Trinity is God the Son. He is fully divine. So when we talk about Jesus, this is the who that we are talking about. We can think about the identity of Christ in this way, as this, with this is our foundation. So we're going to say, with regard to Christ's deity, the Son possessed his glorious divine nature before the Incarnation and really from eternity past. That's the deity of Christ. let's, uh, Let's think for a moment about his humanity, kind of our second main heading here. Our fourth definition is for the term incarnation. And you can hear it from the Latin incarnare. The word literally means into flesh, being put into a physical body. So the incarnation is a specific historical reality. When the person of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, added a full human nature to himself. And this is what we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, or in John 1.14, which you mentioned earlier, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And a lot needs to be said to give this a full and exact definition to who the Son of God is. I mean, think about all that it means to have a human nature and then who we're talking about. It's important to note that it makes sense that Christ would have a human nature too. You can see the the key idea up on the screen there that, that humankind is made imago Dei. We are the image of God. And so for the second person of the Son of God to take on a human nature is appropriate where it would be... Uh, it would be uh, not corresponding if he took on an animal nature or an angelic nature or something. But there is something about the human nature where we're made in the image of God that, that comports well with the gospel. There's a natural correspondence there. So when we think about having a human nature, obviously first, first it involves living in a fleshly, mortal human body. The Son of God grew in a human body. His conception was miraculous, but his birth his growth, his life, and his death were all truly human in every sense of the word. I mean, his human body needed food to be sustained. You know, He got tired and he got thirsty. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and he gets tired, he takes a nap. Beyond that, and more importantly, he died a real human death with no special divine intervention. So his experience includes all that it means for Uh, A real physical human living in a fallen world. And the gospel accounts record for us the bodily life of Christ. But there's more than that too. So to have a human nature also means that Christ had the spiritual part of our nature. So what we mean by that is human psychology, human emotions, a human mind, and a human will. Remember that we said, we said that mind and will and emotions are part of the nature of a rational being. And the church has historically called this a human soul. And what they intend by that, that Jesus took on a human soul in addition to human body, they just mean the immaterial part of us, the mental and spiritual part of us. And this means that just as Christ grew in his physical body, he also developed human mental and emotional capacities, as we see in Luke 2.52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. means that Jesus also felt joy and sorrow and that he was really tempted in both physical and mental matters. The Incarnation also means that Jesus had ordinary human desires, longings, preferences, and aspirations. Just as truly, he had human aversions. And under these influences, he made decisions and pursued options in the same way as we do ourselves. That's a quote from Donald MacLeod. His human mind worked in the same way ours does. So think about it. Jesus loves the Father, and at the same time, he doesn't want to die. Just like us, he has to actively subject his human will to the divine will, like he prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two: 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And based on scripture, the church has historically confessed that the incarnation is a permanent addition of human nature to the person of Christ. So if we look in, in the Bible, we see that Jesus expects to do physical things like dine with his disciples in uh, in the future, in Matthew 26, 29. And he expects to return to take them to be with him in John fourteen three. Other passages talk about the fact that Jesus was dead and is now alive forever. as in Romans 6 and Revelation 1. And they set the expectation that we'll be like him in 1 John 3. So now his human nature is glorified. So he does have a human nature even now. We don't know exactly what it means to have a glorified human nature. We don't have a ton of information about it. But we know that there is a, a real human nature even in Christ now. So here's our conclusion. The incarnation means that the Son added to himself a full human nature, like us in everything except sin. So in all that Jesus of Nazareth did, he was nothing less than human. But there's a balance. He was human and nothing less, but he was not only human. Let me say that again. He was human and nothing less, but he was not only human. And therefore, under our third main heading, we're going to have to talk about the unity of Christ. What we mean uh, is that Christ is both God and man, and yet there is a radical unity in his person. How do we understand that? In order to explain it more clearly, we're going to end by looking at three related definitions, and these are mutually supporting, and I think it helps to take them together rather than in isolation. The last three doctrines answer the question, how do the two natures relate or coexist? So definition number five is the hypostatic union. Now I know we're getting into really uh, wild-sounding territory, but this is actually a doctrine that's a lot less complicated than it sounds. Remember our definition for the term person is based on the corresponding Greek word hypostasis. Look up at the first definition. Greek hypostasis equals person. So hypostatic just means personal. If you can remember that, you can remember the key to this idea. The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Say that again. The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Or we could state it differently the divine and human natures are united in the person of Christ. Thus, the hypostatic union. Crucially, the hypostatic union means that two full natures are united in one person. So, again, if we ask our who question, who is the person? When we ask who he is, we mean that Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the one son of God, one person. But when we consider what he is, there are in effect two answers because there are two natures. The hypostatic union also means that there's no mixture of natures and no confusion between them. Both natures retain their distinctive properties. And it is the one son of God who is the acting subject of both natures. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. He is the God-man. Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. At the same time, both are true in one person. Okay, the hypostatic union. So maybe by way of a counterexample, remember what we said about Samson. When we're thinking about Samson, we see that there's two persons working as the Holy Spirit comes upon him. There's two persons, and there's two natures. There's the divine nature working in the person of the Holy Spirit, through which the person of the Holy Spirit works. There's the human nature through which Samson is working. Two persons, two natures. That is not what is going on with Christ. In Christ, we have two natures at the same time, but only one person. That's the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, the union of of Jesus is two natures in his one person. I've already mentioned some examples of his humanity, he got tired, he died, and we'll discuss some examples of his deity under the next definition. So definition number six is what's called the extra-Calvinisticum. So again, this is another impressive-sounding doctrine, but I think we can break it down in a fairly simple manner. You see the name Calvin in that second word. And that's because this doctrine was attributed to him during some Reformation-era debate. It's actually a misnomer. This was a doctrine that was recognized long before Calvin and in the early church, but it just got attributed to him. So if we want to know the theological definition, we can kind of ignore that part for now. If you want to understand the doctrine, the word that should stand out in your mind is the word extra. So you see it on the screen there. Latin and extra corresponds to the English word outside. So in this context, uh, we can just think of it as... Outside. Extra equals outside. And the basic idea is that because of the hypostatic union, Jesus still lived and still lives a full divine life outside his full human life. What I mean is that the person of Jesus maintained his divine attributes and continued to exercise them in full Trinitarian relation even during the incarnation. This notion is based on the biblical data that describes Jesus participating in the divine acts even during the time of his incarnation, so in no way minimizes the reality of the incarnation. It's not seeking to minimize his full human nature, but it just recognizes that at the same time Jesus had a real divine life outside his human nature. So what this means is that while the person Jesus was thinking in his human mind, in a human manner, he, the person, the acting subject, was at the same time thinking in his divine mind in a divine manner. Note, it wasn't the human nature that we're saying was thinking through the divine nature. That's not what natures do. That's what persons do. There's one person. That was the, the person of Christ working through each nature in the corresponding manner. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense. When we think about the hypostatic union, it's not as if the hypostatic union is some sort of toggle switch where Jesus can you know flip back and forth a switch back and forth between human nature and divine nature. Rather, it recognizes that he lives through both natures at the same time. And because of the gospel accounts, I think we tend to be a lot more comfortable with the bodily reality of who Christ is, his human nature. But we have to deal with all that the Bible teaches. And so, for example, we see in Colossians 1.17 and in Hebrews 1.3, the person, Jesus, upholds all creation by his divine power. Obviously, this providential care or this upholding of creation didn't cease during the time of the Incarnation. This is something that has gone on from the beginning of creation till now. If we think about the Trinity, too, the nature of the Trinity helps us understand uh, how this works. The Trinity didn't become a binity, a unity of two persons, during the time of the Incarnation. It continued as it always has. So this doctrine, the extra-Calvinisticum, just tells us that Christ's deity was not swallowed up by His humanity. Rather, we confess that the finite could not contain the infinite. The eternal Son of God was not limited to the flesh. So, the Extra Calvinisticum recognizes that though Jesus was truly and fully human, he was not only human. His divine life and operations continued extra or outside the flesh. As I said before, I think these three doctrines go well together and help explain each other. So, let's look at our seventh and final definition. This is the term communicatio idiomatum, which is a fun word to say. That's a fun name. Here's another mouthful, but I think we can explain it a bit more simply than the name suggests. This doctrine recognizes a unique feature of the biblical text, namely that the Bible freely ascribes human attributes to the divine person of Christ and also freely ascribes divine attributes to the same human person jesus and that's what the latin phrase means we could translate it something like communion and attributes there is a communion in the sense that the attributes of both natures exist in one person and even when those are contradictory attributes and yet each nature maintains its integrity again we're really we're really looking at the heart of christology now I think the easiest way to explain this is just to show you this pattern in the text. So Hebrews 13.8 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And yet, as we mentioned before, Luke 2.52 tells us, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Well, how can those both be true of the one man, of the one person, rather, Jesus Christ? It is true in that one is true of Jesus as God and one is true of Jesus as man or to say it differently one is true of the person of jesus christ in his divine nature and one is true of him in his human nature yet both are true and there's no contradiction here's another example in acts 1 9 through 11 luke tells us that jesus bodily ascended into heaven and that he would make a bodily and return in the same manner This matches what Jesus told the disciples in the Gospel of John. So for an example, example in chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. He is bodily going to the Father. And yet in Matthew 28, 20, at the tail end of the Great Commission, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, how can Jesus be bodily with the Father and also with the disciples? Well, one is true of Jesus as God, and the other is true of Jesus as a man. Maybe another example to help Uh, solidify it. In John 8, Jesus is disputing with the Jews and he says in verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews, of course, object on chronological grounds. That's not possible, Jesus. You're not even 50 years old. But in verse 58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He takes that divine name, but even more importantly, he says, speaking through his human nature, that he The person pre-existed Abraham. How can he say that? Well, because the one person who personalizes the human nature of the man Jesus Christ is the same person who also personalizes the divine nature. Therefore, what is true of either nature is true of him. There is a communion in attributes in the person of the Son. The attributes of both natures coexist in one person. Think about a final example. Think about how Paul describes the attributes of God to the Ephesian elders in Acts 28. He tells them to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood? Well, no, strictly speaking, it's not in the divine nature to have a flesh and therefore blood, but in the union of the two natures in the person of Christ, God really does have blood that he can shed to purchase the church. So the communicatio then recognizes that In Christ, divine and human attributes, which would normally be mutually exclusive, can be attributed to one person. The attributes have communion in one person. All seven. We did it. But we're not done yet. So to wrap these definitions up, let's think about the confessions that came from the Council of Chalcedon. There's about five conclusions we could point to, and these give us kind of orthodox conclusions that we should walk away with. First, Jesus is truly and fully God from eternity past. Second, Jesus became truly and fully human, including having a human soul. Third, the persons of the Father, Son, and I'll add Spirit are co-equally God, yet distinct persons. Fourth, there is a union of two full natures in the one person of Christ, and fifth, the two natures of Christ are his without confusion, without change, and without mixture. These are the things that we should confess. But again, what does it mean? Those are great theological definitions, right? But what does it mean? Think about who Christ is in the context of Scripture. Jesus was the revelation of God, but it's not as if his entire mission was just summed up by saying he came to transmit some data, right? He came to drop off a message from God. He did come to bring us God's word, but he came to do so much more. Jesus came to make manifest God's redeeming love, to answer every question, and to initiate a whole new creation. He came to break the curse of sin. So Christ is our covenant head who opens God's new covenant in his blood. God's covenant in his human blood. He's our intercessor who can sit at God's right hand, who can ascend to that place of honor with God, as God, And yet, he can also personally sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ is our king. He's David's son who will reign over God's people. David's human son. And yet, he's also the king of kings to whom every knee will bow. He's our husband who loves us with divine love and who will return for us bodily to dwell with him forever. So Jesus Christ, the God-man in all his work for us, has manifest God's self-sacrificial love for lost sinners and has accomplished salvation for God's eternal glory and for his people's everlasting joy. Amen. Let's close with the words of Paul from Ephesians 3:20 when he says, "To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen." Pray with me. Dear heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of peering into your divine nature your character father to know you as a father to know your son and to know your spirit as a privilege that goes beyond what we can imagine i pray that we would cherish it father cause us through your spiritual work cause us to cherish more uh, richly all that we have in christ help us to see in him how you have met our every need and the hope that we have for the future father i pray you'd give us encouragement Give us joy even as we think about who Christ is and what he did for us. We thank you for your great love. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that wraps up our our three sessions. We're gonna take a minute or two, move the podium. We'll get the other guys back up here on stage. So stay in your seats. Just give us a few
0: minutes and we'll get set up for the Q&A. Thank you. These guys are making their way back up here. Can you tell them thank you? Man. (laughs) <laughs> like i said that was that was one really big textbook in about five months of thinking about this that uh, you brothers did a fantastic job of boiling down to three forty five minute sessions. Um, so helpful. I so, yeah, thank dr Wellham for uh, for his his help in, in all of this. okay, so what we're going to do um, ordinarily we do these seminars over in a smaller room, um, but we're we're here for obvious reasons, but I'd still like this time. I've already, some people have sent, sent me questions or handwritten questions, but I also want there to be some time for you guys to interact right here in, in kind of this, this context. So um, uh, when we turn to that, you know, you can just raise your hand and I'll call on you and then you just have to holler really loud or if there's a strapping young man next to you, ask your question to them and tell them to, to shout it out. But um, we'll we'll try try and keep this kind of in a in a one room vibe. So while you guys sort of think about those questions and, and figure out that, I do want to um, jump in with uh, a question that I got. Uh, really, I'll start with two two of these. Um, first, Caleb, this is to you. Can you just uh, define what a meta narrative is? <laughs> you, use that word,
1: and I yeah. don't know that all of us know what that word means. So can you tell yeah, us? what is? So, yeah. So uh, meta thinking, larger. And if you have a narrative, so thinking stories, So just the larger story of Scripture, that's all that Doctor Weldon and Doctor Gentry mean. Just yeah. So you can think creation, fall, redemption, consummation, meta narrative. They say the backbone of that larger story are the major major biblical covenants. Yeah. So the meta narrative, just the story that
0: all the little stories make up together yeah yeah Yeah. Um, and then another question i'll kind of just throw this out to any of you guys i think it's a great question um so so is it because jesus was god that he was able to be perfect does that make sense uh so so is it in other words without his deity Mm. would jesus have been able to have been perfect or another question that Tuck in under that. uh, Was it possible for God the Son Incarnate to sin?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, So I mean, I think we have to probably think of it under several headings. Uh, I mean, trying to conceive of Jesus as, you know, without the divine part of him is impossible, I think. But we just have to look at the Old Testament to see if Jesus wasn't... The divine person already before the incarnation, uh, every single human being, I mean, just look at ourselves, right? Every single one of us has sinned. So there's no other human in all of human history who was a mere human who was able to be perfectly righteous. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, any person who's only a person uh, definitely is going to end up sinning unless they're miraculously sustained as we expect to be in heaven. Um, with regard to whether Jesus could have sinned as the one person who's both divine and human, that's a really challenging question. I think it goes to a question like, can God lie? Well, we know that he can't, but it's not, we have to ask, why can't God lie? Right? It's not like God is going to start to tell a lie, and then he sees up on the wall a rule that says, hey, you can't lie, and he's like, oh, man. He's not somehow hindered by it. It's not an external rule that, that's somehow imposed on him. His own nature does not allow him to lie. Christ was really tempted, though. And so we have to mm-hmm. say that his temptation was not anything less than actual temptation. He was really mm-hmm. tempted in the things that he, uh, in the trials that he faced in his life. So um, uh, could Christ have sinned? Well, in the same way, no, that God can't lie. But it's mm-hmm. more it has more to do with his identity than it has to do with, um, you know, the, the rules of engagement, I guess.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind that question of could jesus have sinned i think when people want to sit answer that in the affirmative that he could have sinned i think there's like a desire that we want jesus to be more relatable with us mm. and i think i can i can understand i can track with that impulse but when we be, when we're able to also affirm that he could not sin that means that he went through temptation to the nth degree to the degree that none of us have been able to experience. So there's no temptation that we've experienced that he can't relate to. And and he's even gone beyond that. And I think that's super relatable Mm. and comforting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so like the book of Hebrews, that we don't have a great high priest that's unable to sympathize with us in Mm. our weakness, Mm. yet one who is tempted in every way, yet without sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, does somebody have a question in here? Just to raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead, Patrick. Why don't you stand up, yeah. pull your mask down, and holler. So, uh, say I, I'm in a conversation with, like, a, a Muslim, and they ask, how would you reconcile Matthew 24, 36, when Jesus says, but that day, or, or no one knows, not, the, not even
2: the angels in heaven
0: nor the mm. son, but only the Father. Mm. Okay, so for mm-hmm. the video, I'll repeat the question. So if you're talking to, say, a Muslim, uh, and they reference Matthew 24, Twenty-four thirty-six, where Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord, and in that day, uh, when that day comes, no one knows, not, not even the angels, not even the Son of God, but only the Father. So how, do we, how would we answer that question? Because a Muslim would use that as, as yeah. an argument for um, this kind of Arian view of Jesus, who's uh, you know, really just a man like us, or maybe a semi-divine kind of you know, prophet in some way. <laughs> Um, but we wouldn't believe that. So, yeah, how would you answer that? Anybody? Marshall, jump in, brother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in, this sounds like a heresy, so I think you're the expert yeah, yeah. on heresies. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I,
2: I think in, in Christ, uh, humanity uh, is full humanity. We have to remember he's fully, fully human. Um, and so he, he is limited um, in, in a human sense of that knowledge. Uh, though he, through the hypostatic union, he is united to his divine nature as well. And we can probably talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, that, mm-hmm. that the Spirit reveals things to Christ in his humanity uh, that, that he would other not, otherwise not have without mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that relation with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I think that's a good place to, to start.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so anytime yeah. when we're talking about, in, in the Bible, in the Gospels, when you see something that looks like a limitation on Jesus' part, mm-hmm. well, we know that's not a limitation that applies to his divine nature, no. so that would be a limitation that applies to his human nature in the one person, and, and that is a bit mysterious, right? Mm-hmm. That, that Jesus, in his human mind, is limited in his knowledge of certain things, uh, though in his divine nature, which mm-hmm. has its own mind, he's not. Yeah. And that's why, again, it matters with these definitions because you could see where somebody could use a verse like that and have a, a wrong definition about the distinction between a person and a nature, and then assume because those natures are distinct that therefore the persons are also distinct, therefore Jesus is not God. Yeah.
3: So maybe just to add to that, that's what the communicatio idiomatum is talking about, right? Mm. There's the communion of. Two different attributes in the person of the son. The person is, the, the Jesus, the man, as a man, is ignorant of certain things. As a man, he's ignorant of the day of his own return. And as God, he is omniscient. Mm. And those are contradictory mm. uh, things to predicate about, predicate about the person. Mm. And yet, both are true in their own way. One is true of him as God, and one is true of,
0: of him as man. So, mm. Mm. Very but good. Still hard to imagine oh Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah because we're talking about god right you know yeah uh okay somebody else in here have a question great question Mm -hmm. yeah is that joseph okay Yeah, so for the for the video, um, so again, looking at a, a very similar, talking about limitations of Jesus, uh, and this sense, is talking about in Luke, the beginning of Luke, where, where the boy Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom and in knowledge, um, and so the question is, what is what is what is the divine part of Jesus doing mm-hmm. when the human part of Jesus is growing and and learning? Is there somehow does that somehow Apply so great question. What do we think? <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> <Back to Brown. laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that that's a that is a great question. Again, I, that's what those last three doctrines are all are all talking about. The hypostatic union—he has the the both natures at the same time. Uh, the communicatio animadem—he's—he's he's got things predicated in him that are kind of opposites. But here's where we really see the the extra of extra of Calvin's extra Calvinisticum come into play. So while his human nature was growing, again we're looking at the Bible and trying to just say what the Bible says. While his human nature was growing and developing, he, his human nature was sometimes asleep. The person of the Son in the human nature was sometimes asleep. Even at the same time, even while he was in the manger crying, perhaps. Mm-hmm the person of the son in the divine nature was exercising all of the divine prerogatives he always has. So the divine nature was totally unchanged. It was operating in one sense just like normal, except that now the person of the son who's uh, subsisting in the divine nature is also now subsisting in a human nature. Mm. And again, we, we don't have a ton of data beyond what the Bible tells us uh, in that sense, we, we know that mm-hmm. both of those things appear to be true of the one person at the same time, even though they're
0: opposite. Mm-hmm. So while the mm-hmm. human nature of God the Son was growing, even as a baby in the manger, the divine nature of God the Son was upholding the universe by His power. Mm-hmm.
3: Filling mm-hmm. the whole universe. Yep. The whole yeah. universe.
0: And that never changed. That never stopped. Like, like Brett was saying, the, didn't, the Trinity didn't become a binity. At that moment. So that's why. Again it's really helpful. Philippians 2 uses the word added. Right. He added mm-hmm. to himself. Another nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not that. The divine nature was somehow lessened. Or compromised. Or mixed into something new. It was that. Mm-hmm. God the son. Had a whole other nature. That he was working with. And working. Working through. And that nature was able to grow. And then have these other limitations. Mm-hmm. And things like we were talking about. So if you can really get those. Those. Two ideas, the com- yeah. communicatio and the extra. That really helps us kind of figure out how the hypostatic union makes sense in some of these places where you come to the Gospels and you're like, wait, what? So if you can really get that, mm-hmm. maybe go back and listen and just the extra and the mm-hmm. communicatio. How do those things really work? Those are very, very helpful
1: theological categories to have. Um, this was one, a question. One thing to oh, yeah. jump in on. That. I think um, these are theological definitions that can sometimes intimidate us or we're just thinking about uh, textbooks but if we think about it in the context of worship i mean you just you look to the cross and if we can hold up both of those mm. the divine nature and the human nature the one person of god the son i mean as the nails are going through his real human flesh he's upholding the soldier's hands as they're coming down and it's not because it's it's just a dry definition. It's because he wants to. Hmm. It's his will. It's his desire. And at that point, we really look at these theological definitions that Brett has brought us through and we sit back and we just worship. Yeah, and I hope you yes.
0: see that, that this isn't, this isn't, hey, you know what's interesting? <laughs> yeah. This matters for everything, mm-hmm. right? This is the whole gospel. Sandy, go ahead. You got a question? Yeah, I
2: just want to follow up on that. For you guys that, How has this study changed the way you think of Christ, mm. changed your worship, and changed your prayer? Caleb, okay, you mentioned
0: that, but I'd just like to hear from
2: the rest of you. Yeah. yeah, I mentioned, I think some of that in my, my talk towards the end, in the application of why it matters. Um, that, that's been really big for me, the humanity of Christ, um, mm-hmm. that we have the mind of Christ. We have the affections, we have the will, and all of those come from His humanity. And uh, he needed to be, he needs to be, he needed to be for redemption, to be fully human for us. So we have that ability to have the renewed mind. Uh, that, that's just been mm. awesome. I mean, that, that, that's been worshipful for me, mm. um, you know, to be really struck by mm. my sanctification. Like this should change us today rather than just, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, and it changes us in mind, affection, and will.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, when I, uh, <laughs> the reason I ask about why are we bothering with these dusty definitions is, when I was at seminary, I actually ended up taking a class from well, and kind of by accident, it, it fit my schedule, and I saw that it was about the person of Christ, and I, in in my immaturity and lack of understanding, I really asked myself, well... <laughs> Kind of the same question, why am I going to bother with this? This is just mm. dusty theology stuff, right? Do we really need this? Mm. And when I took the class, there was no other class that really revolutionized my understanding of who God is. Mm. How do we know God except to be able to say this is who he is? So to be able to have categories for understanding the three persons that we relate as mm. humans to a God in Trinity. We can talk to the Father. Mm. We we can lean on the son, we can talk to the son, we can talk to the spirit, the spirit is someone who is with us, these are three persons, and so
0: mm-hmm.
3: having, you know, having the, the theology to back it up didn't make it any, any more sterile or anything like that, just the opposite, it really mm-hmm. it breathed life into my worship, and I understood in a new way that I never did before, so.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Caleb? Yeah, we prayed, the, the four of us, before we, we came out here and just going from Second Corinthians, beholding the glory of the Lord we're being transformed from one degree of glory into the next. And so the way we're sanctified, the way we grow is by beholding God's glory and knowing that, you know, the stuff we talked about through each talk, um, that it can be able to, to set up Christ. And that's, I mean, that's what we were made for. Um, what's the... Uh, What's the line? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and we need to be satisfied in who He really is. And so, as we get to know who He really is, and the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, I think we're satisfied, and then we glorify God and we fulfill our our primary purpose. So, yeah. just kind of confirming those things throughout the book. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I would echo everything that these guys said and, and things that we've even shared. I mean, just. There were so many moments uh, where I realized I had misunderstandings. You know, I realized that I had not thought as deeply about things as I should have. And I was just, I mean, my jaw was just kind of open. But something else that I, I would say in answer to that was that there was an amazing benefit to doing theology with other people. That I would encourage to all of you that we don't do theology by ourselves. The church never has. We're, this is not an independent exercise. This is something that we do in community. And uh, in all of the theology that we were doing, I mean, it was just rich in Scripture, right? So it's it's we're really just studying all of the biblical data, figuring out how it goes together. Um, but to do that with other men and to hear mm-hmm. insights that other men are having and the way that it's affecting them or even being mm-hmm. challenged, you know, where I might be tempted to keep it all up here and then to hear somebody else say this changes my marriage you know i'm like wow that should change my marriage you know so it was just good to to have it in community and so i would encourage all of you we've thrown out some resources for you there's lots of others actually this that we did through was um, a course that was made available through the gospel coalition the gospel coalition website thegospelcoalitionorg slash courses they have like hundreds of courses that they have put together and a lot of them are seminary courses that just have the lectures from these professors and then it'll have the syllabus it'll tell you what books what chapters to read in advance of this Um, and that was that was all we did is we grabbed a group of guys and said hey let's just watch this course online and then zoom and talk about it it was you know fairly low commitment and just a huge payoff and so doing it with other men like that was was just uh, fantastic. While yeah. we're talking about resources, let me mention uh, Dave Pugh, one of our elders. He he put me onto. I have not read this book, uh, "Putting Jesus in His Place" by the authors are Bauman and Komazuski. Would you say it like that, Komazuski? <laughs> <laughs> Putting Jesus in His Place is the name of the book. He said that's great for another exegetical study on this topic. So that's a recommendation from an elder to you. Hmm. Um, and then this was a question that Dave actually sent in. So we'll go to this. And Caleb, to you, um, you mentioned that Charles Spurgeon quote. I love Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> Any amens out there? Charles Amen. Spurgeon? Yes. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a preacher, sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable by Charles Spurgeon's sermons. <laughs> Because uh, if that brother couldn't find Jesus in the text, he jumped over some hedges yep, yep. <laughs> to get. And if you're not familiar with yep. the, the works yep. of Charles Spurgeon, sometimes it's a little suspicious how he gets to Jesus. Uh, it's still awesome. <laughs> 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 Makes me love Jesus. A yeah. little suspicious. So uh, in, in light of what you were saying, that uh-huh. especially in these Old Testament passages, that every text has a road that leads hmm. to Jesus, um, does that not maybe make us guilty of... Of trying to find Jesus in places where he's not or put mm-hmm. positively, how do we faithfully get to Jesus mm-hmm. without pulling a spurgeon and kind of allegorizing and and yeah. and seeing things that are there that that really aren't the yeah. author did not intend to put there
1: yeah no it, it's a uh, it's a great question, and we want to we want to submit to the way god's Word has revealed himself so we come up underneath god's Word and we don't we shouldn't get to Christ um, because it sounds uh, encouraging or we think it may bless people. We want to get to him in the right way. This kind of goes to, uh, to Sandy's question. One thing that's been helpful for me is, I think, so when I became a Christian and I heard that Jesus was throughout the Bible, I would, you know, wherever I was reading, let's just say it was in Joshua, whatever text I was in, I would then try to leapfrog all the way to the cross, Every time I was reading, whatever text I was in, that was kind of my Bible study method. Um, that can get you into trouble and maybe kind of fall off into some of the errors you're talking about. It sounds bad for me to say errors of Charles Spurgeon, but he was, he was a man. And sometimes his he, interpretive he methods... He did not have a divine nature. No, so that's right. He can, yeah, yeah, we he can that. make mistakes. Sometimes he, yeah, he was going through some hedges and some ditches and he was leapfrogging, kind of like how I did... Really, I mean, in some ways, prior to taking some classes from Dr. Wellham and then this other professor, Dr. Gentry, and one thing they kind of they taught me is okay, there's lots of other tools we can talk about of how to get to Christ correctly, but the stuff that we were talking about earlier with the covenants is that if I can situate myself in the the closest covenant, so if it's the Mosaic covenant, I'm thinking, okay, what is the Mosaic covenant? What's that about? Um, what were the the stipulations? What was the purpose? And then one thing that they really taught me was, instead of going from that covenant and just going forward, first go backward. So what were the covenants that came before, and how did those covenants help build up and then send us throughout the rest of the Bible? The way I've thought about it before, I'm not sure if this is helpful for you guys, but, you know, like those, to- those toy cars where you, like, you pull them back, you know, and then all of a sudden they just shoot forward. I think that got me to Christ in a, in a better way, and even in a more forceful way. And so it's not only accurate, but there's some more force to once you actually get to the new covenant. And if you're like the Mosaic covenant and you're backing up to the Abrahamic covenant and to the Noahic covenant and to the covenant with creation, and you get back there and then send your way through yeah. you know, the Davidic covenant and then up to the, yeah. the new covenant.
0: Yeah, and you yeah. kind of said this in your talk. Um, you think of like a crime scene investigator, right? Sometimes it's just the evidence is right there. It's obvious. Okay, this is... How you get there. And sometimes you have to do a lot of searching, right? Mm-hmm. When we were preaching through Nehemiah, Ryan and I quite often were a little stumped, you know, like, what is this? How do we um and so you have to have different tools, you know? So the, uh-huh. the detective has the thing that looks for fingerprints and he's got a magnifying glass, and he's got I don't know anything about this stuff. I don't know why I use this illustration. But you have different <laughs> tools. You have different tools that you use. And so as we're doing this exegesis, we need to be equipped with these kind of biblical theology tools. So that's why Caleb really just picked one very important one, which is the covenants. But he mentioned there's also themes that run through the whole Bible. There's allegories that are actually good allegories, right? You know, Mm -hmm. so you're not just Mm -hmm. seeing it in there. But, like, take Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. The New Testament authors never connect Joseph to Jesus, but you can read the book of Genesis, and you read Joseph, and you're like, here's a guy that was favored by his father, betrayed by his brothers, uh, left for dead, right? Came in the, gro- went in the ground, came up out of the ground, and ended up being raised to a place of prominence as the deliverer of his family. Mm-hmm. Who's that sound like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's, there's warrant to see that in there but then there's there's lots of other methods that you use even just looking at the historical development and the context all of these things and so that's just part of growing in in your knowledge of that i think one temptation that we should avoid is to see you mentioned the cross i think you could say to to see substitutionary atonement in every text or to see justification in every text that's a huge part of the gospel but the the gospel and this idea of the fulfillment of all of God's purposes in redeeming a fallen humanity, there's more to it than just justification and substitution. And so sometimes you're looking for um, other aspects of God's work in the Old Testament. So we've got a little bit of time left. Anybody else in here have a good question? Back there. Yes, ma'am. Can you stand up and pull your mask down? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. What was happening on the cross? Yeah, well, uh, the person
3: of the Son of God, the person, was suffering in the divine nature, but because of how both natures are united in one person, I mean, Wellam goes as far to say in the book, and I am a little, frankly, a little uncomfortable with this, he says it's almost like there's an aspect in which God is suffering, the Father and the Spirit even suffering, and he, he nuances it more than that. I'm, that's, that's a strongly theological conclusion, and I think you're going to have a hard time, I, I don't know what text he would go to to support that, I'm sure there's some basis he would, he would look at and say, but uh, the person, because the person of the Son is suffering death in his human nature, uh, there is a sense in which he's bearing the wrath of God um, i mean the the penalty of the wages of sin is death and he's experiencing nothing less than death he's experiencing a type of god forsakenness that he's never felt before as a human um how does that what does that mean about his what's going on in his divine nature i mean i think we have to say the person who personalizes the human nature that's suffering is the same person and again we 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 make a distinction between person and nature out of theological necessity, but really there's not a... We're parsing pretty finely in that sense. We're making an an abstraction that doesn't really exist. A person and a nature, or persons in one nature, in the case of the Trinity, or a person in two natures, in the case of Christ, they're, they're so closely linked the experience of a person in a nature it's not that we as persons can look and say oh there's my human nature Mm. as if we could step back it's what's happening to us Mm. and so Christ as the person who is both divine and human as he's suffering in his human nature he's experiencing in his person what's Mm. happening through his nature more than that I don't know what we can say I mean I welcome your thoughts on the subject beyond that
0: yeah i think to say it kind of simply we would not say that the divine nature in the person of god the son could die right um the human nature of the one person of god the son did die and then was raised um and that goes back to that idea of the extra, right? Just Mm -hmm. like when when he's the baby in the manger, Mm -hmm. he's also upholding the power of the universe. He never stopped upholding the the whole universe Mm -hmm. while he was laying dead in the tomb. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, the person, that Mm -hmm. one person, felt all of that, Mm -hmm. right? So like in the Charles Wesley hymn, uh, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? I think in Mm -hmm. one way it's fair to say God experienced death mm-hmm. for yep. us. Mm-hmm. Um, not the divine nature actually dying, but the mm-hmm. divine son of God. Yeah. Um, again, a mystery, but I'm so glad that it happens. Yeah, one, one uh,
3: early church father said that Christ suffered impassibly. So that idea of impassibly means you can't suffer, you can't mm-hmm. die. God can't mm-hmm. you know, be subject to passions as we are as humans. And yet in the cross, God in some sense in the person of Christ suffered impassively i mean there is again there's Mm. that's a place where we just have to say there's Mm. so much mystery we don't have Mm. a ton of biblical data on exactly what's going on Mm. and what the experience of that is like we Mm. we just don't know what we can say is uh kind of what we've already said but that's a great question that's a good and these are good questions to think Mm. through even the questions where we say there's mystery these are good questions to ponder I mean, even if our final conclusion is God just hasn't told us exactly what the answer is, it's great to keep going back to Scripture to keep plumbing the depth, because there's the depth, because there's so much information that He has told us. It's hard to bring it all together in mm-hmm. one place in a cohesive way. So, and
0: yeah. again, it's fun to talk about this, yeah, with mm-hmm. other brothers and sisters. You yeah. know, take somebody out to coffee and say, "So, what was going on on the cross? <laughs> do you think?" That's that's basically half of seminary, right? Is the guys talk, and then you go and like, "What was he talking about?" You know. <laughs> And that's how we learn, and that's how we grow. We do, this, we do this together as a church. But I think, you know, to kind of tie this all up, I think these brothers did such a great job of kind of planning out the course of this morning that, as Caleb said, you know, the, from the very beginning of Scripture, this tension rises of uh, a, a God who alone can save and his promise mm-hmm. to do it through a person. Mm-hmm. And then the cross, I think, is where that all comes together. Mm-hmm. That if, if Jesus dying on the cross was any less than a person, then mm-hmm. we wouldn't have redemption. Mm-hmm. And if he was any less than God, then we would still be in our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the gospel. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the God that mm-hmm. we worship. We'll tell these brothers thank you one more time. Yeah. Thank you, guys. So grateful for you, all your hard work. Um, I'm sure you have lots of other questions. I would encourage you first to talk about those questions with whoever you came with or, or somebody that you... Uh, like and trust, Um, but then if you're still stumped, shoot us an email, okay, you can email us info at dscabq.com, and and they'll forward that to the right people, and uh, you can grab these brothers after and, and talk to any of them, but let me do this, let me close with prayer, and then we'll be dismissed, okay? Yes, God, what a, what an amazing gospel that Um, that you alone are the one that can save us, and you've promised to do that through a person, and you have. Even though that seems impossible to our finite minds, you Mm. have done it. Mm. We thank you. Mm. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for um, all that he did for us, all that he suffered for us, all that he gives to us. And God, I pray that as we think about these things and we try to understand, Lord, that it would just lead us to worship, that it would lead us to a surer hope, a surer faith in this gospel. God, I pray that it would also equip us to go and proclaim this gospel, that we'd be more clear as we talk to people who uh, think the wrong thoughts about you and think the wrong thoughts about Jesus, that we would be better equipped to give a defense and that we would know where to turn in your word to, to show them what you really like, that we would uh, speak well of you. And God, in that, I pray that you would grow us into more and more maturity. And I pray that you would save all of your elect in Albuquerque and around the world for your glory, for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. You're dismissed. You're also welcome to stick around uh, for a little bit or step outside and talk out there. But we will see you all Sunday on the Lord's Day.